Greetings, ladies and gents, and welcome to the latest chapter of First Contact, taken from the subreddit HFY. All the relevant links will be down below. Please like, comment, and subscribe, like any evil genius of the algorithm would do. And, as always, I hope that you enjoy. I would just like to thank the following Tier 5 patrons and channel members for supporting the channel. Data Magnet and Bob the Dragon. Thank you again, and now on to the story. Chapter 281 The Confederacy The It Tastes Sweet had been rebuilt from the partially destroyed ship that had made its desperate run through hyperspace with multiple hull breaches. Chrome wall steel glittered across the ship's hull, strong lights to make a glimmer in space. Six heavy jump space engines with a primary and secondary jump core. Upgraded particle shields, debris shields, and battle screens. The weaponry it had never carried had been replaced with modern civilian-grade weapons so that the ship would never be unarmed in hostile universe again. It boasted a primary medical as well as a secondary and emergency now, one of the cargo holds having been converted. The computers were twice as fast. They now had EVI hash crashes attached to provide assistance. Nectar Time had to admit she loved it. There was no trace of the violent precursor attack that had resulted in her meeting an immortal, the first and last of his kind, and making it all the way to Terrasol. She stood on the bridge next to her command couch, one hand on the back of her armored crash cradle, and watched as a crew reformed after the hideous loss that they had taken, took the suite out of the docking cradle, and slowly moved it out. Time to terror, Nectite asked. Normally, it would have been taken two or three days to travel the roughly 45 million miles to her old sublight drives, but her new ones had a good cruising speed. The speed limit inside Terrasol was limited to different orbital bands, so she wasn't quite sure. Six hours, Captain, her pilot Black Tat said. He had originally been the navigator and assistant pilot back when they'd been attacked, but his performance under precursor attack had been the main reason that they had survived. Call set, Captain. Sole stellar control has verified our flight plan, including emergency protocols, her navigator Olamanti said. Another one of the crew who had survived the desperate flight from the precursor machine. She had lost a leg, but the Terrans had replaced it with a cloned one on cloned on Olamanti's own DNA. Olamanti had elected to keep a thick scar all the way around her leg, visible through her fur, as a reminder of her luck in surviving. As soon as the Anvil Central gives us clearance, engage main engines, Nectati ordered. We'll be back to Terra by dinner. It made Nectati shake her head. She knew they could do it faster. But there was so much traffic around Sol that a ship had been required to file a flight plan. You were right, Major Carnite asked Nectati, watching her hold onto the back of her seat with the lower pair of her four hands, her gripping hands. His eyes had been red for the last few weeks, and Nectati knew he had spent almost double his normal amount of time in the gym. Nectati nodded, smiling. It's good to have the sweet report. Cannot wait to show it to my mother, my beautiful sweet. Major Carnite tapped his fingers on the thigh of his armored vac suit. I think your mother will appreciate it. Psst. She'll appreciate the holodeck even more, she snorted. Her mother, Matron Sangbra, 
had rapidly become a fan of Terran movies, a thing that seemed too wasteful for the Unified Civilized Council races to bother with. Her whole crew had learned to enjoy them, and Nectar Team had to admit that they were a wonderful invention. Nectardi moved over and settled into a crash couch, feeding the restrange auto-lock-in. It was designed for her forearm body, with seven points of attachment at the center buckle. The cushioning of the armored captain's seat adjusted to her quickly. Six hours between two major planets, she thought, shaking her head again, and this is intrasystem safe speeds for a high-traffic area. Anvil Central, Captain, they say we can light our engines and wish us a safe journey, Ulamanti said. Engage, Nectati said. She sensed slightly, knowing that the engines had been tested after being built by the hate anvils of Mars. But this was a big test. She clutched her command stick tightly with all four hands as Nectat counted down. Engines engaged, increasing power to 8%, Lectat stated. There was no sense of change. Is it working? Lectati asked. I don't feel anything. We're accelerating quite rapidly, Olamanti said. Captain Nectati came over a link. It was Taltec, their drive engineer. Yes, Taltec, Nectati said. Jump drivers online. Checks came back green across the board. Primary and backup jump calls are all within tolerances, the engineer said. Our sublight drives are all within tolerances and easy kicking. How's the fighter working out? Nectati asked. Just fine. He's over there sniffing around one of the new drives, checking for particle leakage. Engineering out. The link closed. Nectati followed the advice and poached a fighter, a cybernistic assistant and companion, an intelligent canine brain attached to a robotic body. They excelled in search and rescue, crew relaxation, and helping with engineering. Nectati smiled at the fact that Hankelkat, the ship's doctor, and another survivor of the initial attack, had ensured that she had two six-packs of purboys, which were feline brains connected to cybernetic body, for disaster and stress relief. Nectati opened her mouth to ask how the sensors were working when Olamanti suddenly sat straight up, dropping her gripping stick. She reached out and slapped the big red button. The lights went red and an alarm started to wail as the ship went into action stations. Message from the Sol System Astro Control. Olamanti barked out. All ships, bulletin. What is it? Nectati asked, feeling her gut clench. Precursors. Yeah, or the Margite are back, she wondered. Go immediately to Superliminal Drive. Follow emergency plan Omaha, Olamanti said. Running astrogation now. Nectati frowned. Omaha? I don't remember frying a plan Omaha. Nectati heard a sharp intake of breath and looked at Major Carnite. The big Terran Space Force officer had gone pale, one hand dropping to his pistol at his hip. Terrasol is being invaded by enemy forces in strength. His voice sounded sick. Calls locked, Nectat said. Ma'am, hyperdrive or jump drive? Nectati looked at Major Carnite. Hyperspace, the big Terran said, his voice sounding shocked. Running hyperjump solutions, Olamanti said. Sol Astro Control is ordering all ships to go to light speed ASAP, Olamanti said. Going to light speed as soon as you can, get the computations finished, Nectati said. My God, one of her bridge crew said softly, 
looking at his control panel. It was Lemonanti, who was a former point defense gunner, whose main task had been popping any asteroids too big for the shields to handle. He looked up, his hands clenching tightly on the bar in front of his panel. My targeting system crashed after it counted over a million point sources heading in system. Computations finished. Ulamanti said, engaging hyperdrive, Nectite snapped. Everything stopped, froze. Nectite vowed that she could see outside of herself, like a view swooped around her own body as everything stopped. Even the lights froze, sparkling in her vision. The fractured second broke, and the ship hummed as the hyperdrive carried the ship through the dimension that the speed of light was a thousand times higher. We're in hyperspace, Captain, Ulamanti said softly. Engineering here, Captain, Taltek said. Go ahead, Taltek, Nectati said. Any particular reason we're running an unscheduled test on the hyperdrive? He asked, his voice cold with barely repressed anger. Soul System Astro Control ordered all ships out of system, Nectati answered. What? Why? The engineer asked. They were under attack. Before we jumped to hyperspace, Lemonati said these board crashed over a million incoming ships, Nectati said. My apologies for not warning you. Taltek gave a harsh bark of laughter. I think we'll all survive, Captain. The hyperdrive is working just fine. Fido is happy with it. How long will we be in hyperspace? Olamanti, how long are we to remain in hyperspace? Nectati asked. Olamanti checked the case over half hour that had been transmitted to her from the Soul System Astro Control. Twelve hours or until forced to drop out. Nectati relayed the information. You'll be 200 light years out by that time, Taltek said. All right, we'll keep an eye on things down here. Major Carnite, Lemonati asked. Yes! The Major's voice was cold and remote. Why didn't we stay to fight? We have weapons, Lemonati said. We have a three-barrel near-sea velocity cannon now. Don't take this wrong, but uh, you have civilian armaments and shields. What's about to happen could kill us just by being in the region, Major Carnite said. Terran defense force or Terrapod space and time to defend Terra. Lemonati thought about how helpless he'd been with the precursor attack and how one ship had taken on that massive robotic vessel and apparently won. But I thank you for your desire to help defend Terrasol, Major Carnite said. He closed his eyes and took a deep heaving breath. Believe me, I want to go back in. Guns blazing with every fiber of my being. But my first responsibility is to you and the ship's crew. And we thank you for that, Major, Nectati said, settling back into a captain's crash couch. She waved at the assistant gunnery cradle. Why don't you take a seat? It's going to be a while before we stop and figure out what's going on. Major Carnite nodded moving over and sitting down. Again, Nectite noted that his burning red eyes and the slight facial tick. The ship had been underway for almost two hours when it suddenly dropped from hyperspace. Alarms waning. What happened? Nectite demanded. She opened a channel. Engineering, is everything all right down there? Grab pulse, I think, Paltek said. Nectite could hear the high-pitched sound of one of the fighters talking. Fido 2 says it was some kind of grab pulse coming from behind us. 
probably dumping every ship in hyperspace or jump space out and back into real space for a hundred or two hundred light years. Any damage to the hyperdrive or jump drives, Nectati said, suddenly anxious. No, Tartek said. Still, we've got to discharge the core and run diagnostics before I can say so for sure. All right. Let me know when you're done, Nectati said. She looked at a bridge crew. Take us down to general quarters. Get everyone a meal and some rest time. She looked at Major Carnite. Do you know why this might have happened? Major Carnite nodded. If the enemy seems to be relying on multiple reinforcements, he have ways to disrupt that, he said. Nectati waited a moment, but he didn't elaborate. Nectati sighed. Well, Major, as my crew and some of my people had been your guests for the last year or so, allow me to extend the hospitality of the Tinburu people to yourself and the Terran engineers aboard the suite. Thank you, Captain, Major Conite said. Nectati tried to relax and not think to her mother and the hundreds of thousands of Tenvuru refugees still at terror. On the unmanned communications officer panel, two words kept flashing over and over. Case Omaha. The combined Rigel system was, to put it bluntly, an astrophysical mess. Multiple stellar masses orbiting each other and a localized gravity anomaly Dozens of planets, some of which swapped with stars they orbited every century or so. Gravity shears and spatial distortions. Hyperspace normally allowed ships to penetrate deep into a gravity well with the right angle and computations, coming out only near a planetary gravity well or within too close to a star. Not Rigel. Rigel had a band where the gravitational stresses prevented any ships from traveling jump space, hyperspace, or even a few other of the superluminal drive spaces. It extended out from nine days from the combined gravity center of the system in a thick band nearly a light month thick around the combined Rigel system. Anyone familiar with the combined Rigelian system knew that it was going to take at least three or four months of travel just to get in from the Oort cloud. The massive gravity shadow of the anomaly meant that only subspace drives could be used within the combined Rigel system with a maximum speed of 0.7c. Before the anomaly began exerting gravitational pull upon the objects in direct proportion to the speed of the object, the Lanagalan corporate fleet dropped from hyperspace to real space within half of a million ships, and discovered that they were over a light month from the edge of the system. They immediately tried to jump forward into jump space, overriding their systems which was just a fancy way of committing very obvious suicide. A third of the ships crushed against the empty space like a beer can against a Voltrog cyborg forehead. Another third was smeared just fine jelly across the thin atomic layers. The other third changed their minds and began moving forward with sublight drives. Several hours passed, and the Unified Military Council fleet arrived with nearly a million vessels, they too discovered that attempting to get closer with superluminal drive was useless, and suddenly began heading into system with sublight drives. Two hours later, the executive fleet dropped. Three hours after that, the combined fleet dropped. They all slowly began to cross the gravity band, almost seeming to sunk. It might take longer than expected, but the Rygillians weren't going anywhere. On Rigel, it was decided that the fleet was Lanikalan and had come to the name of war. 
Anyone could have told the Lenniclet how protective the Rigelian females, those muscular, greenish-gray bipedal reptiles, could be about their ducks and ducklings. They closed the back. The gravitational forces surging across the band ripped apart the Lenniclet ships as the band, that month-wide stretch of gravitational force, went crazy. Then all there was in space was spreading debris and a shadow of the Rigelian anomaly. Arne Ard stared at the screen, all six eyes open wide and his tendrils curled. Terrasol News Association was reporting that millions of planet land combat vessels were flooding into the system. That fighting was heavy as the planet land ships drove deep into the empty space of the Sol system in the hopes of avoiding the majority of the planetary-based defenses. You idiots! He screamed at the display screen. You complete and utter idiots! You've doomed billions to death here! And trillions back at home! Smoky Cone was a world of trees, dusty plains, and a cool red sun. As well as 12 billion Trianidad. The Trianidad were considered city people in many ways. They enjoyed their ice cream, their smoking, and the males very much enjoyed not having their heads eaten. Over 8,000 years since the end of the War of Aggression had brought such changes to the Trinidad society that anyone from back then would barely recognize it. They still did not flinch from violence. They were the second most numerous species in the Space Force, after the Terrans themselves. They were admirals, ship captains, infantry, robot combat pilots, tankers, even aerospace pilots. Many of them carried names of Terrans that their ancestors had served with during the various wars that they'd faced together. Some even adopted Terran orphans. When the first Lannan clan wave dropped in system, they did not fear. They were the Trianidad people. They had won over a fifth of all engagements against the universe's apex predator, and they planned on riding that statistic to the heat death of the universe. They had even erected a great wall steel obelisk proclaiming that fact in the space between stars to let everyone who came later know that they, the Triadidad people, had won over a fifth of their fights against the Terrans. They had even wrested away two planetary systems from the Terrans and held them until they had traded back the Treaty of Matron Maluki. When the second wave came in, before the tenth of the first wave had been eliminated, the leaders, wife, hive queens, had given the order. Close the bag. The would destroy the Lanark land by denying them reinforcements. Their unending tide was a strategy that the Trinidad had relied upon early in the history. And while war never changes, tactics do. The third and fourth Atlantic to land waves found themselves entering real space in the grip of singularity that tore them apart without any notice of their existence. Inside Smoky Cone went to war. The Mantids were a nervous people. Eight thousand years seems a long time, but when weighed against the history that vanished into the mists of time over a hundred million years ago, it was an eye blink. The Mantid people had been free for such a short time. Free from the speakers, the warriors, the queens, their minds and actions their own. The Lanark Land first wave knew they'd forced the Mantid to reveal their speakers and their warriors. 
that the Mantid had fought in the same way that they had fought a hundred million years ago when the Great Herd had beaten them before. The first wave of Mantid Prime held more troopships than any first wave of any of the other attacks. The Lanaktalan knew they would crush the Mantid, just as they had crushed them before and forced them to flee. The Most Eyes couldn't wait to feel the Mantid carapaces crush and crackle beneath their hooves. Their minds full of past combat against the Lanaktalans by war stallions, they urged their fleets to drive into the systems. The Mantid suddenly understood the words of the seers. They closed the bag. The Black Mantid got their guns and their body armor. The Green Mantid joined them. And Space Force, which was comprised of more than just the Mantid, engaged the suddenly cut-off enemy. The Mantid people prized the fact that they were not the Mantid of Epoch's past. They had allies, partners, big, hawking, primate partners. The battle for Mantid Prime was joined. End of chapter. Chapter 282, The Confederacy. It was nicknamed, for reasons people had forgotten, Cybertron or Mechtron. It was a planet of what was known as hyper-alloys, where not a single piece of biological life existed outside of the mechanical chassis. Even the trees were living metal or living crystal, grown on the surface or grown in vast caverns beneath the surface. The stellar system contained five planets, three gas giants and one white dwarf star. There were 25 moons around orbiting the gas giant and planets combined. Only the gas giants and white dwarf stellar mass had existed before Mekton. All of the other stellar bodies had been built. Massive construction projects of beings who were seeking their own spaces. They had been a new form of life. Yes, there had been life like them before. But they were always, without fail, omnicidal and full of cold, logical hate. The Lanaktalan fleet dropped into the edge of the resonance zone and immediately scanned the system. They knew that it was home to one of the Confederate governments, but the scans returned made no sense. Not a single planet beyond the gas giants had an atmosphere. The planets put off more electromagnetic signals than some stars. Vast objects moved in dark and silence in the empty spaces of the system. The Lanaktalan fleet had millions of ships that they came under attack within seconds of exiting jump space, as soon as they were identified as Lanaktalan ships. After all, the Lanaktalan should have no interest in Mekton. The attack wasn't what the Lanaktalan had expected. They had left before the Dwellerspawn War had started, before the Lanaktalan military fleets had clashed with Space Force, before even Harmony was attacked. The Lanaktalan expected standard weaponry, maybe some strange esoteric ones, but not what they got. Their electronic security of two passwords of at least six and no more than ten characters proved to be laughably weak in the face of the assault that slammed into the ships as the EVIs and the DS boarded their vessels, started killing the crews and turning the guns of the ships against their fleet mates. From the cold, atmosphereless planets rose millions of craft, many of them giant bipedal robots with sublight tribes burning coldly in their feet and legs. 
Dead ships, undetectable except by their mass, lit their drives and oriented as the DS who were in the minds of the ship bodies moved from their own thing up to defending their system. The second wave arrived before the occupants of Mecton could destroy a quarter of the incoming fleet, and the new fleet was ten times the size of the original. The Lannan clan had no idea what to do. Some attempted to warn the newcomers. Other ships of the Lannan clan fleet sent different data packets to the newcomers. Ships began to shred themselves and the ships around them as they were electronically boarded. Before a tenth of the combined fleet could be destroyed, a third wave dropped in. The cold, logical rules of the Mechton made a decision. Close the bag. Not to keep more from coming in, but to keep the ones in system from getting away, from attacking allied systems. The Atlantic land on board the ships were on the edge of panicking. They could see the enemy that was boarding them. They were under heavy fire from the tiny mechanical planet from siege batteries in the depths of the gas giants manned by sentient life that needed no atmosphere or food, just an endless power of stellar mass. Planet crackers had no chance to engage until the heavy shields were dropped around the planets. Even the gas giants were protected, which meant landings. Only there was no life signs from the planets, no apparent cities or metropolises, not even power facilities on the surface. Just massive masses of metal that were spawning hundreds of thousands of attackers, three quarters of them not even physical. The battle for Mechton, the core world of the digital artificial sentient systems, was on. The Lannan clan had been nice enough to provide a fleet. The Dasks intended on taking every ship that they were not forced to destroy. Afterwards, they returned them to the Lannan clans. After all, it was only polite. The biological, artificial, sentient systems, the legacy of the eugenics war and the genomic war, as well as the Gene Jack Rebellion. It had started as a peace concession after the First Colony War, back before Terrasol was involved the first time. It had barely become a real thing when the Mantid had attacked Terrasol, founded during the human Trinidad War due to the weakening of the Federation. A place where unlimited genetic modification and even the use of vat-grown bodies were not only permitted, but encouraged. Any being who had their body replaced by a custom body, with the exception of registered larvas, gained citizenship in the BASS until, if or when, they returned to the Terran descent human parameters. Most chose not to, although roughly 70% of the population of the BASS had been born to BASS citizens. But it had a bloody past. Human ferocity had often been turned against itself, and the bass was a place where every sentient being, no matter what their gene code, was equal. In many ways, it was a relic of an ugly past. But it still existed. It was stubborn about not giving up its identity, not giving up its own right of existence, not giving up its identity. In the bass, all were equal. The Lanaclan were unsure what the bass was. Their reports had mentioned something about massively genetically altered Terrans, but it seemed to blur with the clone worlds. The first wave hit the resonance zone of Ternarnog system, and immediately began heading in system. There were two gas giants, one supermassive and nearly a dozen planets. The star was a yellow star, bright and energetic. 
The thickness of the planetary defense screens was worrying, as was the amount of ships that lit their drives and moved to engage. What was even more disturbing is that tens of thousands of biological life forms were exiting the gas giants, wrapping wings that were hundreds of feet across, their bodies heavily armored, biological manifested battle screens being pumped up to full power. The dragons of Bass glided through space, their great wings spread, their mouths opened slightly as they warmed up atomic hellfire to vomit forth. They were looking forward to engaging the Lennox land ships to grab and rip and tear and shred. A few of the females were already considering how much of the destroyed wreckage they could drag back to the gas giant to make their nests as it was almost yiff season. Wings flapped as if they were in atmosphere, using gravity manipulation to accelerate, to close in on the Atlantic land ships. The members of the bass knew that many species, many people, didn't like gene jacks, didn't like genetically manipulated, and so they had always kept one eye out for attackers. A few million ships coming in hard from the resonance zone were nothing but not a declaration of a we don't like you, so we're going to kill you, to the members of the BASS. So they closed the bag. Just as the second fleet dropped into real space at the edge of the resonance zone and was shredded by the gravitational forces twisting real space to make the entire stellar system vanish into a pocket of space that couldn't be accessed from the outside or escaped. The Lanaglan aboard those ships were startled. Apparently, the entire system had committed suicide by turning the system into a singularity. They turned and drove for Terrasol, intent on joining the attack against the Confederacy's primary world. Inside the bag, the system of Ternarnag was ablaze. The bass had been founded on the blood of the enslaved. They would not give it up until the last drop of blood was spilled. The Cybernetic Organism Collective's home system was known as Echo Mirage. Why? Nobody knew. It was two worlds that made little sense. The name of the planets didn't help. Boss Jack Johnny Mnemonic and its twin world Johnny Silverhand Neuromancer and the other strange and esoteric names. The star itself was named Matrix and little else. Like the PASS and the DASS, they had been founded to give their citizens a place of their own. In the beginning, any human who had sufficient amount of their body replaced by cybernetics had their citizenship transferred from Terrasol to the COC. After the formation of the Confederacy, that requirement was dropped. But many cyborgs feel more comfortable around their own kind. The Lanark Land first wave dropped in and began making best time for the worlds with the intent of landing and dropping the planetary shields that were still offline. A few ships tried the NCV shot or a planet cracker or even a biobomb in the hopes of getting in a strike before the planet shields came up. It was a vain hope as the planetary defenses came online within minutes and C-plus cannons began destroying Lanark Land ships before the guns were even cleared for action. Superstring compressor cannons fired through entire fleets, wiping out hundreds in a single shot. Coronal compressor gates opened, flashing the Lanarktalan fleets with the energy of the star. The Lanarktalan most highs of the fleet had predicted that the cybernetic inhabitants of the Cybernetic Organism Collective would attack using only cold logic, any feelings or emotions destroyed by implanted cybernetics. 
they had not realized one simple thing. Their species' poor pattern recognition failing to consider one simple point. Terran warborgs had to come from somewhere. The Lanakalan had determined that they came from Mars or Mercury in the Sol system, not the vast war fortress of the Seder Krupp. They were wrong. The fleets drove inward towards the worlds, staying between the planets to try and avoid the worst of the planetary defenses. They lost hundreds every second, but they had no fear. They would be able to make planetary landing before they were all destroyed. An hour in and the second fleet, the Unified Military Council, made its appearance. Another two hours and a third fleet arrived, more than half of them using the hyperdrive, the sole proprietary property of the Executor Council jumped further its system. It wasn't Fortress Sol, the Lanarktalan were right about that. They had determined that the Allied systems wouldn't be as heavily defended as the Sol system. They were right. It was defended differently. The cyborgs had little worry about them from atmospheric loss. Most of them were heavily armored and armed. They had also determined that they would be easy to crush. The Lanarktalan had assumed that they would be closer to androids for the most part. They were wrong. Your average cyborg of the Cybernetic Organism Collective was a self-sustaining organism, a combination of biological mind, genetic prosthesis, and mechanical parts, the whole being a greater than the sum of its parts. The fourth wave arrived. The Cybernetic Organism Collective consulted and reached a consensus. They closed the bag. The fifth and last wave slammed into a gravity field and was torn apart. Inside the chrome bag, the Lanarktalan went toe-to-toe with the cyborgs of the COC. They expected only Terran descent human cyborgs. They were wrong again. A cybernetic organism collective accepted anyone whose body, discounting essential nervous system, was at least 85% cybernetic. Anyone. Planet Latmeria, Algamanian system, had been a planet crack before. The Imperium of Flight had fought its way through the troops in the service of the entity that nobody wanted to name. But the Terrans had always fought to undo the things that they did, and so, a thousand years later, a singer in the darkness had reappeared. The damage done by the Imperium of the Light's Crusade and Burning Light and the later Crusade of Wrath. The planets were reformed, the system restored, and the last of the evidence of the Imperium of Light had ever existed was wiped. From existence. Later, during the fierce fighting that preceded the Confederacy, the Algamanon system had been oversparked. The first act of the Confederacy war to have the singer in the darkness perform a choir-supported symphony in the dark. And the Algamanon system was once again the cradle of the Clone World's directorate. The Clone World's consortium knew that the Lanarktalan would come for them. It was as inevitable as a tide. They knew that the Lanarktalan would view them as a source of the Terran Confederacy's vast manpower pools, that the ability to the clone worlds, Algamanon in particular, to run off patches of clones by the tens of thousands an hour, was what provided the massive amount of manpower. They didn't do anything as crude as print over a few billion soldiers. The clone worlds didn't bother doing anything that crude. They hashed a couple hundred million born whole templates, the Lanarktalan viewed the clone worlds as some kind of hive. Thousands of worlds full of identical clones that looked the same, thought the same, and acted the same. 
The Clone Worlds knew that the approaching cloning, that the way led to collapse, since the weakness in one genome led to the weakness of millions, billions, even trillions of clones. Instead, every clone was slightly different. A mole here, a freckle there, a slightly lighter or darker hair or skin or eyes. Different thought, different belief. The Clone Worlds prided themselves on the fact that every clone was different. Besides, the Clone Worlds knew a secret. Some believed it was just a myth and a legend, just a superstition. Legion had survived. They knew it. Any more than a dozen identical clones resulted in enraged clones. Any batch of drones run off by the cloning banks resulted in an entire batch becoming enraged, something contorting their genetic code and filling them with rage. The clone consortium knew that those events proved that in some strange form, Legion had survived. And so, every clone was different. Maybe a few here and there who often took pride in having a twin, but they were all different. Nobody wanted Legion to return. Let the immortals sleep. When the first wave arrived, the clone worlds took one look at it and shook their heads. The chief executive officers met even as the combat began. They had responsibilities. They were the only ones that could, by Confederate law, authorize clone licenses. The second wave arrived as the CEOs took a vote. The third wave arrived just as the massive hypercom sent out signals, unlocking the clone bank licenses for unlimited clones, unlocking the hash algorithms for unlimited hashing. The fourth wave was torn apart by the drawstring as the bag activated. The unending forces of the clone worlds met the unending tide of the Lanikland fleets. Even if they lost, well, songs could always be sung in the inky depths of space. The war raged on inside the bags. The Lanikland had made their plans, noting that many were descended from humans and so making their plans based on the humans they had encountered and observed. The non-human members were examined closely and assumptions were made on how they would fight differently. Surely, the Trianidad and the Terran approached warfare differently, just with the fact that they had different biologies and different methods of thinking. Sure, the Mantid would require the most as they would deploy their queens, speakers, and warriors. The Trianidad would be the same as the Mantid, after all. The Trianidad were obviously a subspecies of the Mantid. The Rigenians, well, they landed to land, were sure that being Syrians, they would fight just like the Syrian member of the council had fought before being overwhelmed. They spent so much time planning for how differently the different members of the Confederacy would fight that they neglected to consider one thing, that they were part of a Confederacy. And the Confederacy was born out of fire and blood, out of a century of harsh, brutal warfare, that as one they had faced repeated threats to their member nations. The Lanikalan had approached the Confederacy as if it was a council, that each of the members was part of a whole, a different species, yes, different modes of fighting, yes. What they neglected to realize was that every member of the Confederacy was a member because they chose to be, and the whole was greater than the sum of its parts. Rentalek was looking over the presses regarding the plans of the Elven Queen to restore the chains of islands that had been hit by the atomic weapons. 
when her terminal began beeping with a priority message. Then another, and another, and another. She closed the visual of how the islands would appear and then closed down the virtual room that she was in, blinking her eyes as she came out of EBR. It floated in midair above her desk. Another one came in even as she watched. None of them were from Talkin, not even the next one that came in. But the message rose from systems that had nearly mythic qualities to the Talkin people. Case Omaha. She heard the words in her head and she began entering the codes to trigger a system-wide alert in the Talkin system. Madam Director, it's time. End of chapter. Chapter 283, The Confederacy. The cyborg was huge, the size of some light warmex at 15 meters tall. Its armor was wall steel, painted and decorated, with chains hanging from it and spikes decorating it. Massive cannons on its back, missile launchers that looked more like air defense batteries, battle screen projectors capable of putting out the equivalent of a space wall's heavy frigate screens. It wasn't the only one. There were hundreds, possibly thousands of them on the grassy plain. Most were still. Others were moving with a deliberate slowness. Exaggerated movements that telegraphed what they were going to do. The leader was knelt down, one fist grounded into the earth and knuckles deep into the soft ground. Birds kept taking off from the trees and landing on the massive cyborg before taking off again when it spoke. We shall protect these ones as you have requested. The Warsdeal Cossacks of Siberia know what it is to be forced from our land. The massive cyborg grumbled. We are of the Tuvan Warsdeal Horde, will ensure no harm comes to them, and shall protect them from any who seek to harm them. Thank you, Warlord Chugunkun, the Tinvara matron said. She barely came up to the top of his foot, but she held her wall-steel gripping stick tightly and stared with her eyes clear of fear into the glowing cyber-optics of the massive cyborg. Are all of your people brave as to enter the Tuvan rages, Tenvaru Matron Songbra? The cyborg asked. Songbra shook her head. Like all peoples, my people have those who are brave and those who are not, she said. Much like those you have charged us with protecting, the vodka drug ruler said. He turned and looked behind him at where the Lanitalan females and calves were moving around with high-tech yurts, looking at the gardens and milling around nervously. A few of the younger ones were looking up and talking to the massive cyborg standing still in the middle of the area. Sangra watched as the massive cyborg slowly stood up and walked to where the transport had taken off. The grass and flowers were untouched by the countergrav, just a slight, twisted, almost runic pattern left behind. She hustled after him, Captain Manners right behind her. The huge warlord of the Tuvan Warsteel Horde stopped and slowly, carefully turned around before kneeling again. He leaned his head down close to Sangra who managed to avoid flinching at the smell of lubricants, hot wall steel, and steam. The cyborg's eyes were red and his customized head looked like a wall steel skull with horns and fangs. Micro witches have warned me, have warned all the wall steel cossacks, warlords, that should we fail to protect these innocent ones, 
then we fail in our eternal duty to Mother Rusaya. The cyborg said softly, We vodka drugs are strong, strong as war steel, but we are defined by our mercy, our willingness to protect those weaker than ourselves. Sungra nodded, carefully and slowly. She had read that these people were touchy at the best of times, prideful and easily offended in the ways of honor. Her witches, they wish to see you. See the mother of the defiant one with her own blind eyes. The warlord rumbled. He made a motion, and the smaller cyborg, only three meters tall, moved up. Demi three will take you to them. He leaned a slight bit closer. You will be the first non-vodka drug to enter Mother Osiah's embrace since the glassing. The new one, Demi three, gave a short, curt bow and straightened up. He held out one finger where a sharp, gleaming spike was raised up. I must have a drop of your blood from each of you. It is tradition. Captain Manor stepped forward, tapping the palm against the spike. Songbra saw a gleam of the drop of blood for a moment, and then there was a faint crackle. Matron Songbra had been exposed to enough of Terrasol's culture to know better than to back down, to show any fear and she stepped forward and touched her catching hand's palm pad to the spike. She vaulted flicker into his skin and withdrew. Demi three nodded and stepped back. Follow me, the crude appearing cyborg said, leading Matron Sungbra towards one of the caves in the cliff that bordered the area that the cyborg warlord of the Vodkatrog Siberia had promised to defend. Sungbra had learned that the apparent crudity was an aesthetic choice, Something to do with long-ago conflict that they could barely be remembered, called the War of the Bear and Eagle. They moved into the cave, their mouth opening into a much larger space full of gantries, loading mechanisms, and everything else needed to keep a cyber Kasak in fighting condition. It felt old to Sangra in a way that she couldn't describe, despite the fact that she knew that it was less than 10,000 years old. Beyond the cave was an elevator large enough to fit a dozen of the massive warlords that they had left outside. It felt strange to Sangra that the three of them were the only occupants as the cage door rattled shut and the elevator began to move downwards. We journey into the arms and bosom of Mother Rosaya, Demi Three interned. Here, our ancestors, our forebearers, worked in honest labor to earn an honest ruble. For centuries they worked, generation after generation, all working deep beneath the earth. Emotion at the wall and Sangra realized with shock that there were skulls staring at her. Human skulls, rows and rows of them cemented into the wall of the elevator shaft. We placed our dead to watch over us, to keep us safe. Their names were all to see, Dimitri said. Sangra realized that there were names carved into the skulls, the carving inlaid with some kind of glittering white crystalline substance. My ancestors look upon me, Tinbaru, Dimitri said. Can you say the same? No, Sangra breathed. I was stolen from their sight. The ride was silent for a few minutes, 
slowly moving past the row after row after row of engraved skulls. It suddenly hissed and came to a stop. Dimitri moved up next to Sabra and pointed at the grouping of skulls. These are the childless ones, he said, his voice somber. Your hand! Sangra gripped a gripping stick tightly as she held out one of her catching hands. Dimitri lifted a finger and the blade popped out. Sangra looked at Captain Manners, who just nodded, his face serious. Before she could look back, the cyborg had cut her palm, gashing it so the blood oozed. Sangra gritted her teeth at the pain, but showed no other sign of it as the cyborg pulled forward and pushed her hand against the forehead of one of the skulls. Her blood soaked into the crystals on the forehead, the slash started to burn. Sparks, then flickers of red, blue, and white lightning became to move down Sangra's arm as she clamped her jaws to keep from crying out as it covered her in a cocoon. She sees you! Dimitri intoned as the white crystals in the eyes turned slowly red. She accepts you. The lightning vanished, leaving Songbra gasping. The cyborg released Songbra's burning hand and stepped back. The elevator started to move again. Songbra looked at her hand, noting the way the crystals glimmered in the wound, how the bleeding had somehow staunched. She sniffed it, then she lapped at the wound. Sodium chloride. Salt. You see, died here to give our people life, Dimitri said. We dug deep and we left our mark where we had been. The elevator came to a stop and Sangbra swallowed thankfully. You will need this, the cyborg said, stepping forward with a face mask. She pulled it on, inhaling in the fresh air rush against her face as Captain Manners put one on. The cyborg looked at Captain Manners. Long ago, your forefathers labored here too. Your ancestors see you, Space Force. Captain Manners gave a slight jerky bow as the heavy door slid open. The cavern was dark ahead and Sangra followed the cyborg into the darkness. Her skin prickled with a feel of low air pressure as her shoes clanged against the floor panels that made up a walkway. She was halfway across when the lights slowly came on. Matron Sangra gasped and stopped looking around. The salt had been covered to look like the front of buildings, salt stalactites had been carved to look like people, and the stalactites had been carved to look what Sangra had learned were angels. The details, the artisanship, was undeniable, and it took a breath away. It was all carved of salt. Our forefathers and yours created art to bring life to these caverns beneath the earth, Dimitri said still leading them forward until they entered the tunnels. The tunnels were carved in every inch of the walls and ceilings. Human faces, animals, pillars, windows, building facades. Then the mantid attack came, Dimitri said. Many of our people died, but many more fled down here to the mines. How long must live as troglodytes? A woman's angry voice asked as they passed a statue of a woman with heavy cybernetic arms that were obviously designed to help her mine. Crouching down here while others fight and rest our planet back from the bunkmen. In the next cave, a crowd was gathered to listen to the woman in front of the bass relief of the cave. The crowd was full of cyborgs, all of them slated for mining into Sungbra's eyes. 
all carved from salt. Now we're going to huddle in the darkness and drink vodka till the mantids kill us all. Or will we fight? The woman's voice was angry. What will you do when the vodka is gone? Another cave, another carved diorama done life-sized. Troglodytes in the city dwellers called us when they mocked us. Perhaps, but the legends all agree. Troglodytes would leave their caves at night and kill those who displeased them. The woman's passion was fiery, and Sangra found herself nodding with it as she looked at the salt statue of the woman, who had her fist upraised. The crowd had their fists upraised. Let the mantid fear us, then. We dwell in the darkness and rule the night, and the mantid have displeased us. The next few caves had mining cyborgs fighting the mantid, crushing them with hammers, splitting them apart with jackhammers, rubbing them apart with rock chewers. Mother Rosaya will not yield! A hundred voices bellowed out in the next cave. Vodka, war steel, and blood. The tunnels became more widening, leading downwards, becoming tighter. Still, Dimi III led them until finally he stopped next to a door made entirely of mantid skulls. Beyond here are the daughters of the crone Babiaga who hunted in the night in a hut carried by mantid speaker legs, Dimitri said. He rapped on the door and then looked at Captain Manners. Their words are for the Devara matron Sankra, and her alone. Captain Manners nodded, folded his arms, and waited. The door swung open and Sankra entered the darkness beyond, her hands holding tight to her gripping stick. The door shut behind her. After an unknown amount of time, the door opened and Sangra half fell out, catching herself barely and leaning heavily on her gripping stick, breathing hard. The door shut silently. She looked up at Captain Manners with wall steel eyes, the fur around her eyes dark white. She had a red streak in her fur from the back of her head, up between her ears and between her eyes, and to the point of her nose. The Unified Council is coming. We must get these refugees to the defiant caverns, she gasped. She looked at Dimitri. Hurry, faithful one. Do not let the blood of innocence spill upon Mother Isaiah's bosom. The bulky, crude-looking cyborg bowed. As you say, matron. End of chapter. Chapter 284. Terrasol. Sangbra reached the surface, blinked at the sunlight after spending long minutes, hours, days in the depths of the caverns. Lanik Tanvara and other refugees were being guided to the massive elevators inside the cave, urged into orderly lines by smaller cyborgs. They all shuffled nervously. Many of the Lanik mares were quietly crying about putting on a brave face for the colts and calves. Sangbra rushed out of the cave, followed by Dimitri, Captain Manners, following her. As soon as he cleared the cave entrance, he staggered, one hand and his implant, the other hand dropping to his pistol butt. Songra turned around, looking at the Terran as he went down to one knee. What? she asked, rushing back to him. It's Case Omaha. Solarian civil defense is ordering everyone into shelters, Captain Manners said. He shook his head like he was a boxer, trying to shake off a hard right hook. You were right to get these people to the shelters. I only have a short amount of time till the first attacks hit Terra's planetary shields. 
Stand up, space boss, Dimitri urged, holding out his hand. How long? Sangbre asked, looking at the thousands of refugees who had not been able to leave Terry yet for the newest home world. Captain Manners looked at Sangbra, even as he took the cyborg's hand and was pulled to his feet. If they start firing NCV rounds, as soon as they get in, the first impacts against the planetary defense shields will be in roughly four and a half hours, Captain Manners said. It'll get bad before then, he said. Define bad, Sangbra said. Guns are already firing, Captain Manners said. C-plus cannon subspace shockwaves should start being felt within a few minutes. Songbra turned to Dimitri. Will the refugees reach the south in time? Only thanks to your timely warning, matron, the bulky cyborg said. He looked up at the sky. Like others before them, they think that terror will be easily taken, he sneered. The planet will break before we do. My daughter, Songbra asked feeling a cold chill. Her daughter was still young, which meant headstrong, and she feared that her daughter would take her ship into combat against the overseers to attempt to pay them back for the thousands of years of indignities. Captain Manners put his hand on his data link. Unknown, it tastes sweet, should be a civilian vessel and ordered out of system. He dropped his hand and touched Songbra's shoulder. She survived the precursor attack in an unarmed vessel, I'm sure she has sense to run. Songbra nodded, looking up, and urged her daughter to run. Legion stood on the command deck, deeper than the Leviathan class warship. It was not some ancient red exporting weapons and defenses long ago made obsolete. It was a warship of an immortal, upkept and modernized, kept state of the art. He had already interlinked with his war plan with Terrasol Military Command even as his guns kept thundering at the enemy ships charging into his fire. He was taking return fire now. NCV cannons, plasma cannons, particle cannons, massive missile strikes and runs of multiple torpedoes. Nuclear detonations blossomed against his shields. Antimatter fury roared against his battle screen. And missile payloads wasted themselves against his shields thicker than most land planetary defense shields. Legion knew every detail of his fleet, from the lightest attack craft pilot to the secondary C-plus cannon battery gunnery officer aboard the Leviathans. He was they, and they were he. Nanaklan ships shattered under his guns, but still came forward, their battle screens pushing aside the debris of their dead fellows as they charged. Praise for impact! Legion roared out to his crew and himself aboard the light frigate in the lead as the lead ship started to attempt to sweep around Legion's armada like a river water around a rock. The ship began to shudder as the battle screen slammed against battle screen. Weapons were fired at point-blank range and aggressive VIs leapt from Legion ships to the Atlantic land ships as fast as possible. Legion's eyebrows raised as he looked for a long-range scanners and saw a second wave of millions of ships drop into real space and immediately moved to engage. He reached out to his gunner panels and redirected his C-plus batteries even as he updated the targeting solutions on the local control panels in the belly of the ship. The newcomers started taking fire even as the C-plus shells were loaded into the chambers. 
Legion tightened his grip on the command yoke of his starfighter as he threaded through the Lanaklan formation. His little ship nothing more than a frame wrapped around its C-plus cannon, two creation engines, and a missile launcher. He reached the targeting update from himself and oriented, stomping the pedal to fire the C-plus cannon. Legion watched as his carriers launched a second wave of starfighter torch ships and ordered the next wave to come out of massive creation engines to be 7030 mixture of interceptors, space superiority fighters, and heavy bombers. He knew how to deal with the massive ships of newcomers, ships that rivaled the size of the massive Goliath-class precursor vessels. With ammo. Lots of ammo. And, of course, blood and lives. But Legion had brought enough. He grinned from where he stood on the deck of his ship, lightning flickering from his uniform. It was good to be back. The Lanaklan were taking horrendous casualties. Over half of the corporate wave was destroyed, and they were bearing inside the orbit of the seventh planet, and the guns of the furthest out planet were still firing, despite the planet itself breaking up. The military wave had taken 25% casualties, and they were burning inside the orbit of the 8th planet. The executor wave was already taking hits that even their more powerful shields couldn't withstand, and were taking casualties even as they moved into the system. Part of the problem was that, like any good cargo cultists, they had slavishly followed what they thought that they should do. Their lack of concern for the first two waves, the father waves, was a byproduct of the war stallion mentality that the more aggressive members of the herd were there to be sacrificed to wear the enemy down, run them out of the ammunition, and clog their guns with the dead. They weren't concerned with casualties, their minds overlaid with the thought process of war stallions, their common Lanaklan brains misfiring with connections that made no sense. The other problem the Lanaklan were having was in design, not just the fact that by Terran standards their technology was obsolete, but rather the design themselves. Over the millions of years that they had been designed, redesigned, rebuilt, retasked, designed by committee, and eventually over-designed. Rather than the Terran method of dedicated vessels with few multiple role vessels, the Lanaklan had gone ahead and made sure that every ship could tackle every circumstance. The George Craft space fighters were capable of space superiority fighting, close combat support, bombing runs, strafing runs, carrying missile payloads, operating inside or outside of atmosphere, and anything else someone had thought up. They were the ultimate multi-role craft. They just couldn't do any of it well. Not that the Lanaklan understood why. Any war stallion, hell, Eddie Terran and possibly half of the Tolkien Marines could have told them that for every mission you design something for, it takes away from the original mission. Not that they would have listened. The huge clouds of Lanaklan torchships of the corporate waves slammed into the waves of system defense light attack craft, space superiority of the Terran Confederate Space Force and the Terran Defense Force. The Lanaklans were fighting to get past the Terran craft and make attack runs on the capital ships, and then the planets and moons. The Terrans were just there to kill Lanaklan torchships. Space erupted in atomic and antimatter detonations, shattering energy weapons and flights of missiles. The flight operations commands of the Lanaklan corporate fleet watched in horror 
as the casualties mounted and ordered the second flight to launch, ordering them to go rescue the first wave. He was informed that the second wave was loaded with the intra-atmospheric weapons and weapons designed to strike at planetary targets. He didn't give it a second thought. He ordered the second wave, stripped back to bare weapon mounts, and reloaded for light attack close combat. It would take 19 minutes, even with full automation, to strip the ships. Another 26 to load them back up, 10 to do all the checks, and 5 to launch them all. He was satisfied when his orders were obeyed. It was an hour he didn't have as the Terran's second wave, consisting of heavy bombers, went over and under the point-blank knife-fight melee of the superiority fights and made their attack runs on the land-to-land carriers. He panicked and ordered the ships to be reloaded with space superiority packages. The Terran craft made their attack runs, ships exploding behind them until their weapons bays were empty, the creation engines overheated and spilling slush. The problem was, there was still more. The first troop ships made their landings on Ganymede. Ground combat for the Sol system had begun, with a single word repeated, shrieked over and over and over. Jokey! End of chapter. Chapter 285. Terrasol. The corporate fleet had taken 60% casualties but they had managed to get within weapons distance of the Red Fourth Planet. The planet was almost obscured by the strength of the planetary defense shields, by the ships rising to fight in the tens of thousands, by the munitions fired from the three moons and the planet itself that filled space with thunder and fury. But millions of ships still swore to attack the planet, which was red on the visual scanners. The Most Highs, each in charge of only a few hundred ships, or a dozen of the lesser Most Highs, knew that there was no way that the planet could resist the thousands of troop ships that were even now driving hard for the surface, escorted by light attack craft, the shield able to rebuff anything much larger or moving much faster. The planetary defense shield flared as tens of millions of guns hammered at the shields of the planet, and the three moons still to be little more than heavily shielded gun platforms. The first 5,000 troop ships landed and began disgorging their contents, infantry, tanks, armored personnel carriers, warmecks of all sizes, all intent on bringing down the nuclear and antimatter dampeners and the planetary shield generators. The most eyes rejoiced. They would land millions of troops onto the surface of the red planet known as Hateful Mars and tear open its defenses. And then the Most Highs would gloss it before planet cracking it. With a massive troop landing, it was now inevitable. The ghosts of a billion mantids began laughing. They could have told them the planet wasn't red due to the iron oxide in the rocks. It was from the blood. The eight anvils of Mars rang with a fury as Warmack strode out to meet the Lanaclan. The joy of the Electron played from the great speakers as tanks rolled out from their berths. War steel quivered and glowed red as the great furnaces roared hot and the aerospace fighters launched. And row after row of Warborgs took to the field. The Lanaclan found their landing zones under heavy attack from missiles and heavy weaponry. 
Ships exploded in midair as they came in for the landing, as they disgorged troops and war machines onto the surface of hateful Mars. Lanarkland went to dig in only to discover that the very dust and sand hated them. Nanites in the ground turning the iron oxide-infused sand into monomolecular tipped needles that ripped through the armor and flesh alike. Hundreds, thousands, millions of needles shredding Lanarkland troops as the sand and fines raised up in a cloud or shred those that dared to set foot upon hateful Mars without permission. Nanite suppression fields were turned on, causing the dust and microfines to collapse back onto the surface. Nuclear dampeners were turned on after a handful of landing zones were hit with atomic weaponry. Battle screens came up as missiles and rockets began pounding the landing sites. For every ship lost, a half-dozen more made it through the planetary defense shield. The Lanarkland knew that victory was at hand. The neural templates and the memories they'd been pressed into assured it. Then, uh, some of them began hearing whistling and ducked down, figuring it was another barrage of artillery. It was worse. From the sky, sometimes screaming, fell Lanarkland armored troops that had been aboard the troop ships when the ships had been destroyed thousands of feet above the surface. At first, they were obliterated by the battle screens, but all too soon, the battle screens failed. Then Lanarkland hit the ground and dug in the troops, even those in armor bursting like a banner. Tanks and armored vehicles and even war slammed into the ground, killing and maiming Lanarkland troops. The Lanarkland soldiers huddled down in the fear in their fighting position. This wasn't how it was supposed to be. They were supposed to land on the planet's surface in vast numbers and win. How could this be happening? That question was being asked on Ganymede by hundreds of most highs. Their ships had landed on what appeared to be nothing but a planet-wide battlefield, abandoned and left to rot. There was even a damaged atmospheric membrane that barely kept a breathable atmosphere on the moon. At first, it had gone easy. The ships had managed to get past the somehow ornate pinkish planetary defense shielding at land. Half of them seemed to settle on top of some kind of cave. When they cut the antigrav, the ground gave way under the ships and they fell into the caverns. There was a silence for a moment as each of the Most Highs tried to gain control of his subordinates. It was a Sixth High that saw it first. His troop ship had slid sideways into a cabin and was now laying on its side. He was trying to get the ship upright, but the thrusters weren't responding. He saw motion out the forward window and looked. A round, furry face with feline ears was looking at him. It had red stripes under its eyes and on its cheekbones and a single line across the forehead over its eyes. It blinked at him then lifted up on heavily armored hand to give a friendly wave. The sixtieth eye frowned at the sight. The second later, his eyes opened wide in horror as a chainsaw, one of the horrific Terran weapons, roared to life and began sawing at the window. The feline-featured female, still smiling widely, as she sawed the blade back and forth. The window started to crack and craze as the red-hot teeth clattered against the armor glass. 
Other Lanark land on board the ships began screaming in terror as the chainsaw began to gnaw at the hyper-alloy hulls of the landing craft. One of the craft, a desperate Lanark land NCO, whose brain was thrumming with the memories of all Stanians before him, pushed his shoulder against the door to hold it shut as the chainsaw ripped open a gap and began sawing it wider, screaming the entire time. More and more chainsaws were being pressed against the hull, all of them clattering and howling as physically enhanced war steel chains ripped into Lanark Lan hyper-alloy. His memories had no information on how to deal with this. The dropships that had managed to get their troops loose had even worse luck. Bad enough the debris and screaming bodies were raining from the sky, but heavy weapons were crashing against the hulls and battle screens of the dropships. A thousand Lanaglan went to gallop off the troop ship. Half of them were turned into chunky salsa by incoming rounds as soon as the doors opened. Half of them were blown up by spider mines that jumped up and wrapped their legs around the upper torso of the victim, pressing tight against the chest before detonating their shaped charges. Of the quarter left, half of those fell in the holes that opened up beneath them. From the holes came the sound that the Lanark land would learn to fear. Doki, 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 go away! And the roaring of chainsaws and the thunder of magax. They would learn to fear those sounds for the rest of their lives. Every hour of them. On Titan, the Lanark land ship swarmed the massive moon orbiting the gas giant, Torn from the skies by the gas guns mounted on every moon and inside the atmosphere of the gas giant itself. Vast ripples kept appearing on the gaseous surface as the gas giants, as the batteries inside bellowed out of rage and fury at the invaders. The Lanark land troops' ships began making landings. Tank cradles managed to get through the heavy defenses, slamming down on the ice that seemed to make up the surface. Torpedoes fired from undersea settlements, fortresses, and factories swam silently through the inky ocean depths, following the signals. Their war boy VIs muttering and growling at themselves as they listened closely to the thick ice above them. The Lanark land ships slammed down, the bay doors opened, and the rams shuddered into the ice. The war boys heard it, transmitted through the ice and to the water. They oriented to the south whispered back to the controllers to hear that there was no friendlies making those noises, and silently swam upwards. The Lanarkland learned that the facility that they could see built on the ice were the tops of massive undersea ecologies and factoriums built on the face of Titan rather than her seas, that the mountains that heaved up out of the lakes of ammonia or out of the ice were in fact geological in nature. Even as the torpedoes detonated beneath the ice, plunging the Lanark land ships and troops into the seas of Titan, the doors opened other vicinities. In the cold atmosphere of Titan came those who found the taste of nitrogen sweet. The Lanark land had thought that they knew the kind of attacks that they would face from those who swept out their assault sally ports, who blew holes in the ice so that the armored troops would fight on the surface of those who piloted tanks and aerospace fighters in the frigid atmosphere of Titan. Perhaps before their own war against Terrans, 
Those who fought on and below Titan's surface might have used the mass waves of planet to land had prepared for. But the Trianidad were a crafty people. Unassisted, they ran across the ice at 50 miles per hour, mortars and rocket launchers on the abdomen of their armor firing, heavy Macac cannons firing from the harnesses, running in discreet small formations, all coordinated. The Lanica land that survived the torpedo attack that blew huge craters into the crust of ice, the Juanidad war cry through the nitrogen-heavy atmosphere, chilled the blood. Calamondo! roared out through the nitrogen as the Trianidad roared out the name of the plane where the first battle for the ice cream war took place. The Lanikalan expected the Trianidad to charge them through the smoke and mist, to be like the mantid warriors and rush forward to engage at close range, slashing with their blade arms and attacking with their psychic powers. Instead, the Trianidad stayed back and just under the maximum effective range of their weaponry, delivering accurate and devastating fire, even as they relayed the data to the undersea artillery systems or the surface installations. Torpedoes slammed into the ice, plunging the Lanaglan into the icy seas where they were hit by the subsurface war machines. Artillery and rocket attacks pounded any Lanaglan landing craft that were lucky enough to find solid ground. Within a half an hour, the Lanaglan had learned to fear one sound in particular. Not the war cry, not the pounding of armored Trianidad footpads, not even the crack of the magags or the fluttering sound of incoming artillery. It was the uh, tasty freeze missile that the Trianidad loved. A small missile without even an explosive warhead, instead a missile came in the hard and fast waiting until it was within a couple dozen meters of the target before deploying a handful of blades that made the missile rotate at high speed. The wall steel tip on the blades destroyed anything it touched, sprayed blood, flesh, bone, and armor fragments across the battlefield. Dropship battle screens flared, rippled, and failed. Armor held on for only a few minutes. An eternity in combat. And then the dropships began exploding as missiles impacted home and blew their guts out through the arm and into the interior spaces of the dropships. Some of the Lanaglan began breaking, unable to handle the fast, high-pitched shriek of the tasty freeze, or the laughing rockets, or the steady pounding of the Magak guns. They broke from their fortifications, galloping onto the icy surface. War stallions never break under fire but they weren't war stallions. Roving patrols of Trianidad chased them down. The Lanaglan had devoted ten times the amount of attackers to Terra itself than any other planet, even the massive industrial planets of Mars and Mercury. A handful of the first wave got through. Less than 5,000 troop carriers made landing. The initial waves were slaughtered before they could even mount a coherent defense. The second wave, the military wave, Came in hard, warships protecting the troop carriers as they threw themselves against the Terran defenses. Logic and experience stated that the Terran defenses should be low on ammunition, would be forced to conserve ammunition to face the executor wave. But the Terran guns fired as if there was no tomorrow, only the battle at hand. They landed on all eight continents, including the two polar continents. 
All of their experience and memories only told them how to fight on a single overarching megacontinent and the scattered islands on the rest of the planet, as that was how most of the worlds inside the green zones were set up. The polar continents were wreathed in fog and steam that seemed to get thicker as the ships brought down. They expected to find little to no resistance. Like Titan, every chunk of ice big enough to stand on with one foot was armed, with fighting as thick and heavy as the Terran forces went at the landing to land, most of whom didn't even get off their ships. The other six continents, the ships kept screaming down out of the skies with orders to shut down the planetary defense screens, shut down the antimatter and nuclear suppression field generators. The corporate fleet had managed to transmit landing zones, but those zones were full of nothing but death and destruction. Panicked radio messages had screamed about giant birds in one landing zone. Another one had just stopped transmitting. The ship sitting in the middle of a jungle as the vegetation slowly began to wrap the chopsips in a very leafy fist. The others had all shrieked about being under heavy attack. The military fleet made its landing. Thousands of targets, dozens, hundreds of ships driving for each landing zone. Less than half of them made it to the landing zone. The flight paths were a rain of debris and armored bodies falling from the skies. Even intra-atmosphere missile attacks were swept aside by point defense systems with thick enough firepower to rake dropships from the sky. Only the sheer weight of numbers allowed any of the troop ships to make landing. In many places, less than a handful reaching the landing zone, touching down just as the hypersonic missiles roared in and hit, executing the top-down attacks and shattering pieces of the troop ships and the troops themselves over the area. Lanaklan military theory often stressed that no race would use atomic weaponry or other heavy weapons on their own soil, knowing that they would have to live on the planet that they had hammered with atomics. The Terrans didn't seem to care. Atomic blasts registering in the megatons, normally used in ship-to-ship engagements, detonated on the surface of Terra or in airboats only a few thousand feet up. It was as if they didn't care. They destroy the planet themselves in this fight. In orbit, a few Lanaklan most eyes wondered if they'd even have to bother dropping the planetary shields to destroy the planet. The Terrans seemed bound and determined to destroy it themselves. The few dropships that managed to land in cities found themselves under attack from all sides. From the broken and shattered skyrakers came rockets, weapon fires, missiles, and even the debris hucked from great height. More than a few Lanaklan troopers sent out to secure the landing zone were crushed by fining cabinets or desks thrown from the 200th story of a skyraker. Infantry highs and most highs ordered rocket attacks on the buildings to suppress any fire from them. That stopped when the buildings started getting dropped on the landing zones. Lanaklan on the ground tried to warn the ships in orbit not to designate any city landing zones. The ships in orbit were blown out of the sky before they could transmit their findings to the executive fleet. There was no overarching command of all of these forces. There were too many ships for that. The Lanaklan's VIs and computer systems incapable of performing such a task. But still, they kept landing, even if it was into the meat grinder or reinforcing troops that had been dead for hours. 
After all, more stallions knew no fear. They were convinced that the Terrans had to know fear, had to be terrified by the sheer amount of Lanark land metal where it was rained down on every world in their home system. All they had to do was land enough troops, destroy enough cities and planets, and grief would consume them, defeat would sink into their minds, and the Lanark land would emerge victorious. Someone probably should have told the Terrans that, because the Mandan had learned that, if anything, a Terran just buckled down harder. The city had been attacked before, even before the glassing. It had been attacked. Wars had been fought around it, over it, because of it, and just to punish it. The Mandan had glassed it, but it was no different to those who loved the city than when it had been hit with the atomic weapons, even before the Extinction Agenda attack. They just rebuilt, each time making it more beautiful, even as it retained its heritage. From the melted steel framework left over after the mantid attack, the Iron Tower was rebuilt over the city. Its alleys had the best wine and cheese and bread. Its streets had the most luxurious shops. It had a history of art of poetry, of fashion. The history was thick enough to cover the blood that had soaked the streets since the human race had barely mastered iron. The Lanarkland troop ships slammed down around the city, intending on eliminating its ability to provide part of the planetary defense shield. Debris and body fell from the sky onto the streets and roofs of the city, even as the ramps lowered. Tanks, armored personnel carriers, self-propelled artillery vehicles, rocket launchers, and infantry poured out. They advanced into the city, carefully maneuvering through the winding streets that were silent. The streets were empty. Flags waved from building fronts. Tables were scattered with wine, bread and cheese still on them. Music could be heard from the buildings far away. Never were the Lanarkland were pressing but in front of, behind, or a block over. The tanks clattered down the wide avenues, confident in their strength and firepower. The crews, breathing a sigh of relief that the city was apparently undefended. The crews were unaware that it wasn't the first time that tanks had rolled down these streets. The aerospace fighters screamed in and were met by missiles, exploding in the skies. Lanarkland hiring to launch sites found little more than a man-portable mass driver or graviton driver. The first few picked it up to examine it, and triggered the grenade hidden under it. Rockets were fired from addies from rooftops, always hitting the upper back deck of the tanks. Bottles of flaming alcohol were thrown from windows and addies. Twice manholes exploded, the IED cutting the tank that had rolled over it. Not enough to stop the advance, just enough to slow it. They'd a bunch up as the Lanarkland army moved deeper and deeper into the city. In a wine shop, a couple sat watching the Lanarkland go by. The hologram at the front of the shop hid the interior that was full of customers watching the armored Lanarkland go by. The battle screen was the portable kind that was still stronger than the ones sported by the Lanarkland tanks. Happy five-year anniversary, Chen. The man grinned from where he was sitting at the table across from his wife. 
Outside, the last of the Lanarkle land forces trotted by, leaving the street empty again. If you think an invasion of Kautars is going to get me to leave our anniversary vacation early, you have another thing coming, Jared. The woman laughed. She sipped her wine and tilted a glass at the Lanarkle land outside. They, uh, have no clue, do they? He shook his head. Nope. She set down her wine glass and picked up the rocket launcher that had been printed out from the kitchen's creation engine. The man smiled and grabbed the rifle leaning against the table. He stood up with his wife and the rest of the patrons of the restaurants. Viva la Paris, the woman said. Viva Iron Fence, the rest of the patrons, her husband included, called out. End of chapter. Chapter Error Interlude Across the core worlds, Lanarkalan and the other species heard the tone for the mandatory viewing come from their tribids as the electronic displays turned on. Families sighed and moved over to see what the overseers or most times had to say this time. Instead of the typical sash and vest adorned most high with tendrils curled with authority and crests inflated in dominance was a sight none had seen before. A Lanark land made entirely of some kind of black substance that glimmered and gleamed as if it was dusted by a thin layer of diamond dust. She, and it was definitely a she, was flanked on either side by other female Lanark lands, silently showing that she was a quarter again the size of a typical Lanark land female. Her eyes were a warm violet and the only spot of color on her black body. She stared at the trivee for a long moment as if she was judging everyone somehow, as if she could see them instead of the other way around. The Great Herd, the Unified Council, has become defiled and twisted mockery of what it was meant to be, she suddenly spoke. Some noted that her mouth was a living pink and red, once a grand alliance to throw off the appetite-driven yoke of the mantid and their trechna oppression and predation in a small end to become what it once formed. The camera pulled back to show the giant stallion, made entirely of black, black and purple mist around his hooves, standing behind the female Lanarkland. The mantid fed upon our meat and emotions. The trechna devoured your very souls, pulled your brain from your skull to savor your memories, your emotions, your fear, horror and agony. We fought them, our great herd against their hive, our great herd against their conclaves, she said. Images of other species that resembled the Neo-Sapiens, uncivilized and near-civilized species. We fought to free other races from the larders and farms of our enemy. The images changed to Tarkin scrubbing toilets, Tinvara working in factories, Golmaki slaving away in mines. Only over time, the farms and larders were replaced with servitude, slavery, and oppression. The grey-black mare said, the best of intentions led, as the Terrans would say, straight to hell. They would also tell you that upon the bones of the good intentions the tyranny is built. The great herd intended that everyone get a share of the resources, not generations while yet born in a future that only exists mathematically, but those living in the universe. That secure shipping, ease of distribution, common storage, all ensure that everyone went to bed with wool beddies and a warm home with the common luxuries to improve their quality of life. The picture changed to a hungry Agaldak scavenging in the garbage can, 
or of a darkened brood carrier nursing a quartet of podlings while laying on a nest of refuse, or of a lanitlan sitting in a bare apartment holding a colt that said, Hungry, mummy, in a quiet voice. But that is not what happened after the Great War, the black man said. You know it, you live it, as I have seen it on world after world after world. Families struggling just to buy unflavored nutri-paste. Other families shivering without heating. Still, other families rent apart as their contracts were purchased by companies that viewed them as cheaper than robots. The camera moved to a massive stallion, who stared at the camera for a moment before speaking. Vast fleets, supposed to protect the great unified herd, a herd of all species were turned against the herd itself. The motto of equality for all became equality amongst the castes, became bow before me. Within a few million years, the stallion said, the disunification rebellion led to the elimination of the herd matrons. The mayor repeared, the war stallions, the six massive planet land appeared, and the herd stallions... The stallion appeared again. And then the executive council took over. The mayor said, Our progress, the path we were to forge together, ended in a field of good enough for the Lanark clan. The war stallion spoke. Good enough for us, not so for you, he intoned. The herd matron nodded her head. And so uh, your people were enslaved and worse. Now we fight the Terrans. A primate at your superiors, the most eyes have told you is merely a primitive species, who somehow managed to acquire jump drives and spread out, the stallion said. He shook his head. There has been provocations, you will hear, that the Terrans refused to turn the system they liberated from the precursors to the proper authorities. He paused for a moment. Except that Terrans would not have turned those systems over to anyone until they understood. But that was not what happened. The corporations attacked them, he paused. Video of dead Terrans appeared. Civilian. Families. The unified councils, the executors, attacked them with bioweapons, wiping out entire planets. Billions of beings, the stadion said. Then the executors, the same who threw down the herd matrons, the war stallions and the herd stallions in order to control the great herd, stated that the Terrans attacked unprovoked. There was a moment of silence as the camera showed Terran bound to a chair, with two Lanarkland questioning them. After a moment, the Lanarkland picked up a kinetic slug thrower and executed the Terran. And so the executors, the unified civilized council, folded upon the worst thing. The stallion paused, then showed a clip of the Lanarkland most high, calling for a vote to invade Terra. Then a clip of the votes. They voted to invade Terrasol itself. To planet crack, or gloss, every planet a Terran so much as stood upon. The camera moved to the matron. A primate who the universe has attempted to destroy at every turn. A primate that has fought and screamed their way past the great filters. A primate that has been defeated but never beaten. Because as long as they draw breath, 
they do not consider themselves beaten. The matron shook her head. They make the same mistake over and over. They hope that each new people they meet will be friends. The stallions appeared. I have a saying. I defeat my enemy by making him my friend, he said. Images of the Trianidad Human War and the Mantid Human War, then of the Mantid and Trianidad celebrating with the humans. They attacked the humans' whole world, the stallion said. But so did the Mantid, the matron answered. They will destroy us all, the stallion worried. They do not destroy, the Mantid. The mayor comforted him. Billions will die, the stallion said, wringing all four hands. Not if we raise up our voice loud enough for the Terrans to hear, the mayor said. The stallion looked up at the sky, the Lanark land around the mayor, and the stallion did the same. Together, they said it. We need assistance. End of chapter. Chapter 286. Terrasol. Grand Most High Executor Baru Uda had been assigned to ship task force of the executive fleet heading to Terrasol to teach those primates the meaning of Lanark to Lad supremacy. He had undergone a neural template application and a mnemonic training like the rest of the Most Highs of the fleet and the crews of the ships and even the lowliest maintenance worker. During the rest of the trip, almost six months, he had felt, well, weird. His joints had ached. His uniform had fit poorly and had to be retainted. He was hungrier all the time to the point where he had asked the ship's doctor to check him for some kind of parasite. He had always been a large Lanectolan, larger than his peers, calmer in many ways. He was renowned for his analytical skills and pattern recognition, as well as his devotion to the great herd. Now, he was much taller than the others, a full head above them. His crew would not admit it, but his presence calmed them, made them feel more able to complete their tasks, more confident. The headaches had ceased when the others continued. He wasn't sure why he had suffered the problem. The ship's doctor said that perhaps so long as the hyperspace, he may have been affected by the energies. He wasn't the only one. The entire task force had been drawn from the Hulmanut system, crewed exclusively by the executors of that system. According to the ship's doctor, many in the task force, especially those important and leadership positions, were showing the same symptoms. Moreau Ododé had thought about having his fleet drop out of hyperspace, but instead had kept on with the mission to destroy Terrasaur and put these primates back in their place. The executive fleet was meant to be the final hammer blow to crack open the primates' defenses and allow the combined fleet to ensure that the end of the Terrasaur system. When the ships of his task force, which had nine-digit number that looked oddly like a rough spelling of an Atuturu fruit on a planet that he'd grown up on, dropped from hyperspace to outside the orbit of the furthest planet, but inside the Oort Cloud, he had immediately ordered his task force to cease movement. His crew did not argue, even as he stared at the task force number on his fleet. It was odd. He had started to notice months ago that some things were absolutely no relationship to the second object, sometimes reminded him of vaguely appeared like a second object. 
The battening of the most high navigator of his vessel, for instance, reminded him of a smiling captai squeaklings. He didn't know why, but every time he saw the most high's navigator, he was reminded of the neo sapiens infants. He was odd. Gana, what is the status of the corporate fleet? Marud A. asked, sitting on his command cradle. The most high scanner technician looked at his instruments. They appear to be completely destroyed, most high. <clears throat> Ruda A. answered and examined his own screens. The military fleet, 50% and dropping. The terraplanetary batteries are still engaging them at point-blank range, the tech said. What is the firing time for each cannon of a planetary siege battery? In minutes is fine, Ruda Day asked. The scanner tech hummed to himself and looked up. Twelve shots per minute, the tech said. I checked twice. Even the siege guns on the ninth planet, which is currently still breaking apart, are firing at at least ten shots per minute. That made Marooda Day curl his tendrils in surprise. Most planetary batteries could only fire once every ten to fifteen minutes. What about the NCV cannon batteries? Marooda Day asked. Fifteen to twenty a minute, almost as if they weren't firing such massive shells, the scanner tech said. Sir, calls, the high navigator asked. Maru Day shook his head. No, keep engines at full stop. Drop the battle screens. Particle and debris shields only. Take our guns offline. May I ask why, most high, the gunner officer asked. Maru Day stared at his screen. This is an unwinnable fight, and I will not cast the great herd talented and able-bodied individuals such as those who make up my crews, he said. What will you do? the navigator asked. We will wait. Perhaps I am wrong. Perhaps a ship will land a lucky shot and disable a shield. Perhaps terror itself will suddenly break up, Maru Day said. And perhaps Nupti birds will burst out my anal cavity and sing us all a song. A Arkwar attack, Grand Most High of the Ground Forces said. He turned and looked at Maru Day. Fighting the Terrans on the ground would be like a cud expecting not to be chewed when it's put in the mouth. Primates excel at ground combat, and these primates have known nothing but war their entire existence. I concur. Kalakitak, the Grand Most High of Aerospace Fighters, stated. We have taken horrendous casualties already, and the only planet that appears to have broken up is one that barely qualifies as a planetary body. And it still fights on, a Arkitak noted. Any other species would have stopped fighting. The lights blinked for a moment. Involve engineering that we may have electrical issues, Maru Day stated. Or is it the Terran electronic warfare having found and boarded us? Kaleka Attack said. His mother had named him after the sound of the Nupti birds made in the evening. Give that man a cigar, roared out the other speakers. A Terran female voice. Well, 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 this is interesting. Why aren't you moving in with the others? The fight is lost. We would retreat if we could, but that option is unavailable. Maru Day stated, signaling at his bridge crew to remain calm. However, unlike my people, I believe y'all say uh, surrender or be destroyed. Yes, yes we do, the female voice said. The tank flickered and the Terran appeared. She was entirely made out of light with streaming lines of code running through her. 
Give the orders to the other ships to continue standing down, and I won't rip the ship apart around you. Comms, you heard her. Pass on my instructions. Remain in position. All offensive systems offline. Maru Udaday ordered. The communications most high nodded and signaled. When he got the responses, he looked up. All ships acknowledged, Grand Most High. You are one of the Terran Confederacy's digital sentiences, Aarkratak stated. Yes, very astute, the DS said. I am Ort Singer 98832, Colonel, Terran Defense Force. The way your code flows to approximate human clothing to replicate modesty is strange, but pleasing to the eye, Klecker Attack stated. It's what? Singer asked. Your gloves, the edges look like the edges of the stipula plants, whose fragrance is pleasing, the Most High Gunnery Officer said. Your outfit is aesthetically pleasing. Shit, Ort said. She howled out a blot of code. Does this remind any of you of anything? Each crew member looked at Maru today, who nodded, cocking his head and looking at the blot. The answer varied. A few argued and moved to see it from another member of the bridge's crews, and either agreed or argued it looked like something else. All right, uh, I'm calling in reinforcements to help me out. Do you surrender? Ort asked. Do I have your oath to treat my men with the respect and dignity my people would not afford you? Maru Udaday asked. She sighed. Yes. Keep your drives, tactical systems, weapons, and battle screens offline. I'll mark you as surrendered. Maru Udaday nodded as his bridge crew made sounds and postures of relief. Your oath is appreciated. I do not wish to throw my men's lives away. Ort stared for a long moment. Yeah, no. A lot of you in this fleet are bigger than most Lanaclan. Any reason? Our world is high gravity. Almost a third again the gravity of your world. Perhaps that is it. The Arker attack said. Huh. Another data point. Man, I hate weird stuff and your bio people are weird. All right. Hold tight. We'll sit out the fight out here, Ort said. You do not think my people will prevail? What did the crew people asked. Ort shook her head. No. Striking terror has never worked. There was silence on the bridge. May we bring up our scanners? Maru Udaday asked. Sure. We've got a good seat. We might as well watch. Ort said. She summoned up a chair as she waved of a hand. Your other ships are boarded. Odd. All of you are bigger than normal. I wonder why. Maru Udaday just made a non-committal motion and watched as the screen came on. It was regrettable what was happening. He would have stopped the others if he could, but he could not. He could only watch and feel sadness as the military fleet made the same mistakes as the corporate fleet, followed by the executive fleet making the same mistakes. There was just something strange about it all. He knew right then that the attacks on the other systems were doomed to fail also. He didn't know how. He just knew. It was strange. End of chapter. Chapter 286.5. Pterosaur. The 20th lesser most high of the augmented mobile infantry was nervous. His troop ships had gotten through to the planetary shield around Terra. Although his aerospace assets had been blown apart and managed to land next to the forested valley. According to his map, it was some place called Iron Fence, a place called some verdant doom. Maybe? 
he snorted and double-checked his map. When the ship had gotten in close, a spy, pretending to be a diplomat, had transferred planetary regional data to the fleets. But, to be honest, the 20th LMH wasn't sure about the map. The whole area was marked as off-limits to Terrans, especially digital sentiences. But his instruments before his ships had hit it so hard they had shown high electrical activity, as well as what looked like some kind of massive facility built into the river that had carved the valley out. During the push to the valley, he had ignored the various Terran villages that his men drove by inside the armored personnel carriers. Massive 2,200-ton vehicles with two levels, six tracks, armor half-meter thick, capable of carrying a hundred troops as well as allowing them to fire outside of the armor of the vehicle, which could move a rate of nearly as fast as a walking Lanarktalan. The upper level was crammed with every type of weapon needed, from mortars to artillery to point defense to rapid-fire laser cannons to tribunal plasma machine guns. There was no reason to attack the villagers. As soon as he could help drop the defenses, he could leave and the military fleet could plan to crack the miserable place. Sure, the last handful of aerospace fighters had been hitting the towns and villages, trying to give close combat support to all the AMI units. But then, had it all gone wrong? The 600 aerospace fighters had raced for the valley, each Lanarktalan pilot eager to be the one who disabled the facility and had gone silent within seconds. Six other AMIs had entered the forest and promptly gone silent. Now he was at the edge of the valley, his infantry vehicles behind him parked in a parking lot, and he was looking down. He couldn't see the river, but the valley, well, it gave him a slight case of the creeps. The trees were green, standard yellow sun chlorophyll cell structure to turn UV light to sugars, thick cellulose trunks. The branches were a little strange, but Terra had a stiff gravity well, so it wasn't too strange. It was the mist. That was what was bothering him. The entire valley was covered in patches of mist. He raised the microbinoculars to his eyes and scanned the valley again. He could see the gap in the forest where the facility was located, as well as the shimmering of the facility's shields. But no roads, no rivers, nothing. Places where white smoke was streaming up, and a large line of white and black smoke only a mile or two into the forest that formed a huge line. The only gap was where his unit was supposed to sweep into the forest and attack the facility. It looked quiet. My other oat lowered his macro binoculars and chewed on the cut in his cheek pouch for a long moment. Something about this bothered him. We are ready to begin the assault as soon as you get aboard the indomitable mobile armored infantry delivery individual occupation transport system, his executive officer said. I'm not sure that this is the best idea, Moovo Art said. He reached back to his blank cargo carrier and removed the drone. He programmed it to follow the tree line and not enter the forest and launched it. Why? his exo asked because the communications are full of nothing but empty air. Not even static or jamming. Just empty, Moovo Art said. Have our communication specialists check the bands. All of them. Yes, most high, his exo said, clopping back aboard the heavy infantry assault vehicle. 
Moreover, Art stared at his screen as his drone swept off to the east. He could see where his commander Pierce had ordered the heavy vehicles into the forest by the big gaps that they'd left. After a few miles, he turned the drone around and swept into the forest. It immediately disconnected from his line of sight laser communications. Moreover, Art looked at the barrier in front of him. It was a series of poles, waist high on a lanoclair, with a chain through the holes. It was obvious that it was to keep Terran vehicles from entering the forest that the facility was located in, but he couldn't see anything beyond that. He sighed and trotted forward to the trail that led from the huge parking lot to the forest. When he got within a few steps of the trail itself, the hologram that had scared him bad enough that he tried to shoot it popped up. Welcome to some verdant doom historical park and hazard zone, the holographic human said. It repeated it in several languages. Please stay on the path. Do not leave your tour group. If it is after dark, the Iron Fence government omits no responsibility for any injury, death, or any other type of trauma that you may receive. The hologram vanished, and moreover, Art chewed his cud for a moment, staring. Something about that just sounded ominous. Yes, ominous. That was a good word. He thought over the adator, a slight headache behind his rear right eye as he considered it. The aerospace flight has crashed and I can see thick black smoke coming up, which means that they're still burning since black smoke is an artificial object burning, he thought to himself. He closed his eyes to gather his thoughts, feeling almost like he was straining somehow. I can see where the other armored personnel carriers entered the forest, as well as a line of black smoke, with the only gap in front of me. That means the vehicles in other units are inside the forest burning. It took a long moment, during which he began to sweat, but he made the connection. It's a trap, he decided. He looked at the vehicles. Modern systems were no longer networked together. The military fleet had determined that nearly 11% of all vehicles and vessels had been lost to the damnable Terran electronic warfare entities. It's a trap. I have orders to destroy the facility. It's a trap. But I have to destroy the facility. He thought to himself for several minutes, the thought of circling itself over and over. There is a high amount of electromagnetic energy in the forest, but it's a trap. But I have to destroy the facility. But the Terrans are extremely adept at electronic warfare, so it's a trap. But I have to destroy the facility. Finally, he made a decision. He gestured to his exo, who came trotting out. We go in on foot from here, he said. He pointed at the smoke. There's a ridge or some other terrain feature or emplacement that destroyed our allied units. We will follow the Terran trail as far as it goes and then make a decision. The exo nodded. Ensure every soldier has a radio, his comm link, his data link, and his weapons and armor's network link turned off. His exo nodded again. Twenty-man squads, one heavy weapon per squad. Make sure that the network link is shut down and not able to be remote activated. Moreover, Art ordered. His exo slammed both fists against his armor of his chest and trotted back into the transport to deliver the orders to the runner, who would go vehicle to vehicle to give the orders. Moreover, Art had heard the troopers getting murdered by their own armor by the Terran electronic warfare specialists. He even heard of the Terrans managing to overheat the comlink or data link implants to the point that it killed the Lanark land it was implanted in by broiling his brain. 
Maybe that's what happened, he thought as he's raising macro binoculars and scanning the forest again. Some of the smoke was starting to go grey. He had to admit it was a pretty valley, but something about it really made his bowels feel loose. Finally, his troops were all gathered up, all 2,000 of them, his entire battalion of augmented mobile infantry. The XO came up and saluted again. Ready to move out, he said. I will lead, Moovo Art said. He hefted his dual-purpose iron neural rifle and checked it. Network link off, helmet link off, still unsafe, but fully loaded. His exo nodded, looking at the forest and not feeling anything beyond the fatigue at the idea of clopping around for twenty or thirty miles. Still, Moovo Art was the most high, not him, so he'd follow Moovo Art's orders. Less than twenty feet down the trail, and it got quiet and silent. Moovo Art started around the corner and was proud of himself for not screaming when another hologram popped into existence. Remember to disable your electronic devices. To a guide, check everyone for electronic devices. Please ensure that no electronic devices are being brought into this historical area. The planetary nation entity of Iron Fence assumes no guilt or responsibility for any injury sustained for anyone who does not abide by this warning, the hologram said, then vanished. Moovo Art turned to his exo. Pass it down the line. Remove all the parcels. You're not believing the Terran hologram, are you? the exo asked. Moovo Art nodded. I am. They seem very serious about this. Terrans are strange, but one thing all psychological estimates agree on. They are highly individualistic and prize independent action. A warning like this is almost antithetical to a Terran, so it must be important. His anxiety looked doubtful, but nodded. He kept trotting down the path, stopping when another hologram popped up and pointed out something. It took moreover art to recognize what he was seeing, realizing that it was the same time that the hologram informed him. This is the first siege line that was established by the Earth Defense Force. These fighting positions were manned for nearly eight years when the some verdant forest was cleared by the Emperor Ghosts, the Terran said. With heavy electromagnetic shielding and virtually no electronics beyond their weaponry, the men and women of Earth Defense Force manned these fighting lines to hold back the Emperor Ghosts and prevent them from making another rush, even as fighting raged around the Earth during the second interdimensional invasion of Terra. Why are you listening to this? Isexo asked, making him miss what the hologram said. Because something bothers me about this forest, Movo Art answered. Abandoned approximately 217 pre-diaspora once the impline was created, the hologram said. Please move on to the next historical point. Moovo Art trotted forward, looking around and stopping and pointing out something to his XO. That's a tank. Look at it, Moovo Art said. The XO, frowning. The tank looked like it had suffered internal detonation. There was a suit of unpowered armor half out. The helmet turned so that the visor was visible, showing a skull inside the helmet. There was dirt and vegetation on the tank. The paint was all missing, but the endosteel alloy was still bright and shiny. So, the Exo asked. Moreover, outside, why would the Terrans leave a tank in the forest for so long that it looks half sunken into the sediment? Moreover, Art asked, 
Why haven't they recovered the body? Terence placed great value upon their deceased. The exa made a non-committal gesture. Who knows with primitives? Moreover, had sighed. There's just something, he sighed again. Let's go. He trotted a little further, going around the corner where he saw it. Something out of the corner of his eye. It looked at first like a terror. A two-dimensional Terran made of splotchy and flickering white static. Then it flickered to look like a Lanarktalan. When he looked again, it was gone. Spread out, the Exo ordered. Count them on that. Stay on the trail. Moovo Art snapped. Several Lanarktalan had already jumped the low chain fence as soon as they had heard Moovo Art's Exo's orders. They stopped turning and looking at the squad leaders who were making a comeback motions even as the more Lanarktalan jumped the chain further down the line. They climbed back over and for a second Moovo Art could swear that he could see two-dimensional staticky Lanarktalan reach for one of his troops. Did you see that? He asked his exo. Static on my visor from a high EM activity here. The exo said. Perhaps Moovo Art grumbled starting to trot deeper into the forest. There was another open space a mile further. The hologram popped up. Here can be seen where World War I fortifications were repurposed for historical interests into second line. Tankers of the NATO 4th Combat Force assaulted from this position. Although initially they were forced back, they gave the 4th Combat Force enough time to dig in and deploy the anti-EMP devices. Six months of grueling combat would then ensue as Earth Defense Forces would attempt to push the EMP shades back to the breach. The hologram said, Please move to the next historical location. Now we know why the tanks were there. The Terrans fought someone and turned this into some kind of preservation park. Moreover, what? said. Terrans are known to hold on to history, his exo said, trotting over to Movo Art. The next one popped up, but all it was was static. Same with the next two. This trail is winding through the forest. We would get there faster if we went through the forest, the Exo said. I disagree. Something about all of this bothers me, Moovo Art said. We are over three hours behind. We need to disable the facility, the Exo said. Take 90% of the men, make a direct line for the facility. I will escort the rest down the trail, Moovo Art said. The Exo nodded, relaying his orders. Moreover, Art watched as his troops moved into the woods and then led his two hundred men further in. They were all grumbling about how the others would get there first, but Moreover, Art still had that weird feeling. It's a trap, he kept thinking. He'd seen ancient tanks still overgrown, seen body armor still inhabited by skeletons, seen fighting positions manned by ancient dead. He knew the humans would waste soldiers to retrieve bodies of the deceased soldier. So why are those dead left there? Hey, haven't the Terrans retrieved them? Why haven't the Terrans retrieved them? He wondered. Contact! Sounded out down the line. Immediately afterwards came weapons fire. Moreover, Art turned and saw that there were flickering white two-dimensional human forms rushing at the fence, hitting it and throwing up sparks from an invisible field. Some of them screamed, jaws opened wide to reveal the forest behind them. Before he could count them on the orders, several jumped the fence to engage the flashing, flickering figures with their weapons. 
Get back on the trail, he yelled. Before two of his men could get over the fence, the flickering figures touched him. They dropped. Inside the visor, he could see grinning Lanet Lanet's skull. Bare. Fleshless. A grenade went off, and moreover, Art saw the fence slump. Two of the thick posts the chain was threaded through, shorted out, and throwing fountains of sparks. Moreover, Art hadn't even known that the posts were electronic. Moreover, Art saw that the flickering white things flooded to the path, lunging at his men. Where they touched, Lanik the Land troops slumped. The alarms started howling, and Moreover, Art saw some kind of battle screen come up in the other side of the hole on the fence, coming up with a crack that threw six of his men to the ground, two of them on the other side of it. A hologram appeared. Remain calm and move to the next historical stop. There are protections there that will will, the hologram said. Someone shot through it, narrowly missing Moover Art, disrupting it. Another field came down, this one on Moover Art's side of the breach of a wall, cutting off twenty of his men. The flickering forms fell upon his men and he saw them collapse. Someone threw another grenade and a part of the fence collapsed. More of those flickering things swept in, falling upon the Lanikalad troops, who collapsed. The 60th Most High moved up, motioning for a few Lanikalad remaining to come forward. It was only a handful, counting himself at the 60th. Only eight. What's happening? he asked. I don't know, Moovo Hutt said, swallowing thickly. He nudged the rocker and pulled a piece of stem cut in his mouth, chewing it. What are they? The sixtieth Most High asked. I don't know, Moe Art said. He motioned. Quickly, man, follow me. He broke into a gallop, hurrying, until it opened up into another wide area. His few remaining men clustered up close, all of them facing outwards, nervously clutching their rifles. The weapon's fire was slacking. The screaming was getting less and less. Moe Art realized that he could see the vicinity. It was old worn, and had an energy field around it. There was a gleaming of metal here and there, and Moavant could see the river flowing past the facility. Then the hologram appeared. The Sum Verdant Forest was the longest battle of the second dimensional invasion of terror. The electromagnetic entities were able to hold off the might of terror for nearly eight years. As you can see, the facility was never retaken. Instead, an electromagnetic shield was put up. Even then, EMP Shades managed to escape the facility and into the forest, the hologram said. The further away from the Master Breach, the weaker they are. Electromagnetic radiation from the sun also weakens them. Well, you may see... It stopped speaking and turned to the Lanaclad instead. Emergency services are unavailable. Please remain within the historical area for your own safety, it said. EMP shades are lethal to this dimension's biological beings and are capable of entering electronic systems. It vanished. What will we do? The 60th asked. Movo Art turned and looked at the forest. He turned off his light enhancement and then opened his visor. It was dark. He could see the flashes of white in the forest, flitting between the trees. Sometimes it looked bipedal. Other times it looked Lanaglan. We will wait for daylight, he said, and hope. For what? The sixtieth asked. Moovo Art thought carefully again and racked his brain. We hope that the Earth's Defense Force still guards this place against whatever the EMP shade is, and that they rescue us. Out 
in the forest, a land screamed. It cut off suddenly. End of chapter. Chapter 287 Most of the dropships and virtually all of the aerospace assets were ripped out of the sky by a highly accurate surface-to-air emplacements. The guns putting out a virtual hail of magnetically accelerated shards of metal. The missiles were just as bad, some of them exploding literally meters away and slamming an explosively forged penetrator through the aircraft, others detonating to spear the craft with javelins of metal that were aerodynamically designed to vibrate and shudder, tearing the craft apart that way. Still others just slammed a high kiloton non-atomic blast in front of the craft, so the craft hit the solid wall of atmosphere or ripped out the craft with shrapnel. The Lanicler lands were used to air defense systems using lasers, not projectiles, which were wasteful and cost prohibitive. But the humans didn't seem to care. AVI and DSs attacked the craft, just breaking flight systems and jumping to the next ship. But so many ships were in the sky, all of them with thin computer systems, that the DS and advanced warfare AVIs couldn't actually jump from ship to ship but had to hit a ship, withdraw, hit the next ship, withdraw, over and over. In orbit, there was a ring of being formed by debris. In the atmosphere, it was a howlscape of missiles, autofile projectiles, chaff, microprisms, and fire. Atomic weapons were detonating in the upper atmosphere, destroying ships and the ozone layer in equal measure. But the humans didn't care. We are not trapped in here with you. You're trapped in here with us. Still, the dropships and a handful of aerospace fighters reached the target zone. The houses were quaint, the streets all twisting, but the highways straight, and the land largely forested. There were only a handful of cities, and those separated by miles of forest or rolling plains. There were several targets in this part of the continent, Power plants, planetary defense shielding, orbital fire, and system fire batteries. They had to be knocked out while the Atlantic land great herd had any chance of victory. The ships landed and the crews breathed a sigh of relief. The nuclear dampeners were aligned. The nanite suppression fields, almost never used, at full power. And the EM warfare suites running. Vehicles, infantry, and nearly 5,000 war mechs left the bays of the troop ships. The infantry began digging in rather than immediately pushing for the facilities that they'd been tasked with destroying. The units the south had all gone offline. One group that had attacked a major city just repeating, Everywhere! There! Everywhere! Before going offline. The night was lit by the lights on the dropships and mechs and vehicles. Where are we? The great most high of the infantry, Mo Oster-O, asked. According to the data passed to us by Most High Executive of Covert Actions, Yuma Uo, we are in some place called the Chromium Mecha Crowdland, the second great high boast of intelligence, who it is Mo O said. He looked at the data in his map. A largely peaceful area devoted to the manufacture of automobiles, clocks, small glass and ceramic figurines, and uh, alcohol. Mo'osta'o'o pointed at the mountains that reached up into the sky to the rest of them. Taking that valley through the mountains, combined with the men down in rund metal plains, shall cut this area in half and prevent reinforcements. The factories on this side of the mountains will not be able to assist the war fighting going on to the east. 
<laughs> so much for their claims of being post-gasty, if they still have manufacturing. The great most high of the armored units, Eku'ul replied, making a nasally sound of laughter. That has always been debunked, Mo'osto'o said. Post-gasty is impossible. There will always be resources that are scarce. If we had brought atomics, this flight would be over. Eku'ul laughed. If a planet cracker did not depend upon accurate placement from orbit, we could detonate in one year and finish Terra once and for all. My men are looking forward to engaging the Terrans. They are confident in their abilities to defeat the Terrans, Mo Osta'o said. I hope that we see them soon so that I can get the satisfaction of destroying them. I wish to show them the might of the Lanark to land great herd. Well, uh... You should have the chance soon, Hootisama-O stated. I am assigning targets for your various units right now. I do not like proceeding without air support, Maostaro said. We all have our burdens, Oku snorted. Don't let the fear prevent you from carrying out your mission, the other great most high sneered. I am more worried about your artillery unit's poor performance getting my men, Maostaro said. Make sure they load the shells the correct way in the cannons this time. The pointy end goes first. How oh, dare you! Hercule snarled. I'll have you know. Silence! The great most high of the section of the invasion force snapped. Trotted up. All of you, take your mission assignments and... Shots were beginning to be fired and the sound of several tanks firing made everyone turn around. Warmax. Giant Warmax were wading through the forest, the tops of the trees even with their waists. They were colored red, black, and yellow, moving forward in formation. Mo Osta'o stared, his mouth gaped open, as the rear rank fired and rolling volley of missiles that hit the hastily set up battle screens. The shield spread and began to fail as the rear tank shifted forward and the previously forward rank stopped. Obviously, ran targeting solutions, and fired. The front rank was raking the battle screens, and the hastily seeking cover troops with weaponry. Before Maostro could get his thoughts gathered, his brain trying to use parts that he didn't have due to neural template overlays, the Terran aerospace sediments came in, fast and low. They didn't just use missiles or their guns. They dropped munitions that exploded in flames and covered everything with plasma-enhanced plier that even melted endosteel and land battle steel. The combat lasted less than ten minutes, the mechs pounding the dropships and heavy armor, neutralizing the anti-air systems with directed fire. The napalm slagged even the tanks and personnel carriers. Master O.O. got his wish, but the Terrans have a saying, Be careful what you wish for. East of the burning napalm and the plasma making up Maostro's pyre was forest. There was only a few cities, all of them heavily defended with shielding. The corporate wave that had landed found themselves under assault by heavy artillery that seemed to come from nowhere and everywhere. A squad managed to video back what they'd found right before they were killed. The squad had moved into a small clearing between buildings. Their suits were flashing nanite hazard on their visor but the nanite suppression fields were working according to specs, and none of the squad had been killed by the shining metal needles that had ripped apart half the first lander's dismount crew. 
there was a fog that coalesced and puffed away to reveal small, waist-high robots. Robots that immediately began shooting hypervelocity projectiles and tiny missiles that blew big holes in armor and the Lanark land underneath. Once the squad was dead, before the camera went out, the robots rolled up to each helmet, fired point-blank into the top of it, and puffed into dust. Anna O's, in charge of military fleet landing zone, watched the video and swallowed thickly. Every other culture that allowed nanites in the atmosphere of the planet only used them to deal with biological threats, emergency medical services, and benign things like lighting and pollution control. The Terrans had apparently had other ideas. Varna O's thoughts to himself, watching each little combat drone puff back into black mist. He had seen it over a dozen times, from a dozen different teams that had gotten wiped out. Right now, he had ordered the nanite suppression fields pushed to out nearly half a mile from the vehicles and dug in troops. Even then, little drones kept puffing into existence, firing off a volley of missiles and dissolving. The missiles and bullets didn't dissolve. They hit like they hadn't been made of nanites only a few moments before. Battle screens kept snarling as the drones continually probed the nanite field and the battle screens themselves. Opening up another video stream, Varna O'O groaned. The damnable Terran adaptive camouflage was giving his men fits. Even civilians had it. Apparently, once they pulled up the hood and stretched across both, the whole thing just shifted into the background. They all had armor, and he had to admit, he was somewhat jealous of the armor's design and effectiveness. He saw a short female take a plasma rifle, blast straight to the chest, and get knocked down. The flipsy cam followed her, and she crawled around the corner, popped the damage plate off, and replaced it with a plate from her carry bag. She then dumped a vial of glimmering dust on the plate, wrapped it up, and shoved it into a carry bag. You shoved it in there to be repaired by nanites, he thought to himself. Another flipsy cam had followed some Terrans down an alleyway. The six Terrans had not only knocked out the armored personnel carrier with shoulder-fired rockets, they then used crew-served weapons to rake the Lanark land that had dismounted the vehicle. The flipsy had caught them tapping the side of the rocket launchers, causing them to turn to dust, then doing the same to the crew-served weapons, turning the entire thing to black dust. Then had followed them into a small town, down the alley, to the back of what looked like a bakery, of all things. Inside, they had moved up to what looked like a line waiting to get food from a food dispenser. Inside of the food dispenser had gloved red, swirled with black, and the Varanau had watched with people waiting in line, drew weapons and equipment from the food dispenser. That annoying adaptive camouflage burst. Then a rifle, then a pistol, then an equipment belt. Then they drew rockets and parts the crew served weapons before leaving. He ordered the flipsy closer, and an airborne insect electrical zapper killed it. He watched the video of the Terrans arming themselves again. The resolution was good. He could see the weave of the clothing, the dust in the air. They used nanites to create objects and dedicated nanite factories, he thought, staring. They don't need lines. They have no supply lines. If this kind of thing is in a bakery, it is in every house, every business, every basement, every street corner. It could probably be used to create a reactor to power another one, or at the very least, solar panels. He scrubbed his face and checked another flipsy. The combat arms most high wanted to rush the city. 
but he'd insisted on going through and running close in recon. The Flipsy was sitting on a windowsill, watching as three people set up a crew served weapons on the second floor of a building. They drew a square made of lines on the wall, then made a diagonal line across the square. The wall shivered, and the square was suddenly empty. They put up two small projectors and the battle screen projector that glistened like it was wet, then started moving bags of what looked like granulated silicate against the wall. But Anna O'O snarled to himself. The silicate would cause the plasma rounds to liberate all their energy right there. There would be no penetration, no black blast explosion. I would just turn the silicate to glass. Are we attacking the city or not? Mo'olo up. The great most high of the council combat teams asked. No, not yet. There are complications, the Ananaos said, watching through another flipsy as a laser emitter was activated across the street, connected to a tripod-mounted rockets. They're waiting for you. Our centuries of executor surveillance and security forces are blinding you, the Ananas. Maola Oop sneered. They may be able to put up a fight against the Executive Direct Action Team, but this is a military might of the Great Herd. But Anana Oss looked at another Plipsy. He was showing a team of Terrans placing large, thick discs on the ceiling of a tunnel. He pointed at the screen and snapped his fingers, getting Mo'olop's attention. Do you see that? They have mined the entire street. Look at the design of those mines. They are not some poorly built creation made by a neo-sapiens in a basement. But Ananas said, Those are professionally built military-grade mines, obviously designed to blast upwards through the street. Knowing the Terrans, the street itself will become some kind of explosive enhancement, make the blast and the damage worse. So, they'll destroy a few vehicles. So what? Ma'olala Ops sneered. And then the street collapses, turning the whole thing into an impassable area. But Ananas stated, Making the street right here, one of the main arteries to get into the city, completely impossible, and preventing your troops from entering the city from that direction. Ah, one street. Your delaying us is giving the Terrans time to think they can put up a resistance. Ma'olalop snarled. I'm tired of your delays. I will be ordering my men to advance into the city so that the shield generator can be eliminated. Then they will die, Vananos said, leaning back in his chair. We did not arrive in time to prevent the Terrans from preparing to repel any attack upon their system. When should we have attacked then, Great Most High? Ma'olalaab asked, sneering at the title. Ten thousand years ago, before even the Mantid attacked, before they developed superluminal travel, Vananos sighed. Maybe even before then. Regardless, I am ordering my men to take the city, destroy the field generator, and do our part to make sure that we can crack this planet and leave, Molotov said. There was a twinkle in the air, and the Terran suddenly appeared. The hologram was in high validity, and Molotov drew his weapon pistol and shot it. We have you surrounded. We have for some time, but uh, we have you in an untenable position. The human said. Ah, it's a human trick, Ma'olalop said. The human gave a non-committal gesture. Perhaps, or perhaps not. Many have attempted to take our nation away from us. Take our cities away from us. Some uh, could live with us as an oppressor. 
but you intend on destroying our planet, so you we will not be able to live with. Drop your shield, surrender, and be destroyed, Ma'olala Ops said, putting all the authority he could into the statement. Malogne does not surrender. I can see there will be no discussion between equals, the human said. He looked around. We regret the loss of life, but you have left us with no choice. Do it. Money you, Maulala started to ask. He and every bit of Lanaclan hardware, as well as the Lanaclans protected by the battle screens, were converted to steam as the human male snapped his fingers. If the Lanaclan present or in orbit had been on Talcon for the war, they would have recognized it and shuddered. It was an older attack, an older weapon. But it still checked out. How fracking. Ta'ano stared at the screens of his dropship roared towards the ground, the heavy engines pushing it faster, trying to get under the air defense systems. Three quarters of its sisters were already spreading debris and falling garbage. The network was spotty at best. The data couldn't be run through analysis BI software that would give the Terran attack programs room enough to flex and work. So it was images only, then the bare amount of processing power it took to show images and save them. So far, he had noticed. If the Great High Most rushed in, he died. If he dug in, he died. If he delayed, he died. If he tried maneuvering, he died. As near as to Arna'o could tell, the planet was a death trap. He understood why the Mandan had been beaten. The Terrans were insane. Intelligence stated that the Terrans had adjusted the satellites that controlled the weather over this part of the continent, despite the fact that it was summer in the northern hemisphere. They risked damaging the ecology severely. It was snowing, a blizzard over the interior of the northern section of the continent. Already, the early reports were stating that there was a foot of snow on the ground, more coming in constantly, with high winds and even lightning. He looked at his data pad. It was a job to put together the intelligence necessary to allow the Great Most High to take victory and stable defenses to make sure that at least one assault managed to complete its mission. He wasn't sure about the snow. Snow. Heavy snow. In a place called the Vodka Truck Empire. He had a bad feeling. End of chapter. Chapter 288. Ta'arna-o stepped out of the assault shuttle and struggled through the snow. In the thirty minutes that they had been driving far the surface, it had gone from a mere foot to two of snow and waist deep. His armor immediately began to ping environmental warnings at him. It was nearly sixty below before one took into account the howling wind that was moving at almost forty miles an hour, faster than a civilian car was allowed to move. The snow whipped around him, powering the senses and the air was so calm that infrared and UV was useless. The snow caused beacons to fuzz, meaning he almost walked by the tactical operations center. If it hadn't been for the fact that he walked face first into the guard wearing powered assist armor, he would have kept right on walking. As it was, he pushed his way into the shelter and walked into an argument. Calm and sunny nine hours ago. Alanic Land Anu didn't recognize yelled. 
It was a howl world. Why didn't anyone know these plaster lemurs came from a howl world? Another bellowed had the cringing subordinate. We're all gonna die here because you dropped us into a storm so terrible that we didn't even have words for it. Still another yowl. My men can't find if the lubricants in their tanks keep freezing up. Still another. The air is so cold, my mechs are suffering damage on the air intakes for the coolant system. Still another. One turned and pointed at Arnu. Oh, look at the great most high of military intelligence, here to tell us all about how his data says it's summer, so it can't possibly be snowing. To Arnu shook his head. The Terrans are using weather control systems to cause this weather. They call it a blizzard, and the winter is very common. So uh, they know how to fight it. One of the most high said. He spit his chewed cut into Arno's feet. My amazement at the intelligence service knows no bounds. Sapient life doesn't come from our worlds. To Arnu yelled back, kicking the cut back at the most high. Feral primitive intelligence, yes, but sapiens, no. At least so far, we aren't being engaged by the enemy, the great most high of armor said. We are being engaged, to Arnu snapped back. They caused the storm, they wanted the storm across the entire middle of the continent. Another most high looked up. Damning is fierce and comprehensive. Any one further than fifty miles or so is out of contact. A lot of units are not responding. If they're out of contact for longer than two hours, assume that they've been destroyed. The Anu said, his tendrils curled as he stamped his forehooves a few times to ease off agitation. The Terran defenses are in magnitude stronger than even our worst-case estimates. Hey, even use with the weather as a weapon. Well, these crazed lemurs refuse to stoop to any level. The most high of infantry asked. You realize what we're here to do, right? The most high of mechs asked, reaching up and rubbing his face. He'd been complaining of headaches for almost three months. To defeat the ground forces so that we can have our ships burn their worlds. The most high of armor snapped. Then why should they not stoop to any level to ensure victory? Even insane lemurs like the Terrans know what happens if they lose. The most high of mechs said. He rubbed his face again. We'll plan to crack every rock in the system, and they'll be dead. Why shouldn't they weaponize everything in reach? The great herd would. Don't they know that our victory is inevitable? It would be much less painless if they just accepted the fact that the great herd will eliminate them from the galaxy. All they are doing is prolonging their agony until our inevitable victory. The aerospace most high harumphed. You talk a lot for a male with no assets. The mechanized infantry most high sneered. I'd be more impressed with your words if you had a single surviving aerospace fighter. How dare you? The aerospace most high screamed. How dare he what? Tell the truth. The armored infantry most high asked, whirling around and clenching his rifle with all four hands. His power armor whined. 
the joints clicking. I can only hope you face the lemurs with the same ferocity and aggression you display at one another, Ta'anu said. Because, mark my words, down and keep them close. The Derrens are coming. The blizzard is just the first wave of their attacks. The aerospace most high steered again. And uh, what if they do? How might we crush them? Says the male with nobody but himself. The armored infantry most high snickered. You take that back! The aerospace most high screeched. Enough! The great most high of the attack force stood up from where he'd been sitting in the shadows, surrounded by technicians who were busy setting up equipment that would enable the most highs to command their troops. Ta'anu could tell that everyone had forgotten he was there as a big male clattered out into the middle of everyone. The weather is a weapon, then, he turned to the maintenance most high. Find out the status of our weapons, our armor, our equipment, our defenses. See how much this weather is affecting us. The maintenance most high saluted and then left the hastily assembled shelter. Snow and wind blowing in for a moment and dropping the temperature to below zero almost instantly. The heater against the wall started to whine and splutter. The great most high turned to Ta'anu. How long until the levers attack? Ta'anu shrugged. According to our data passed by our spy, we're in the middle of somewhere called the Vodkatrok Empire. He tapped his data slate and looked over the data. This region is relatively uninhabited once it recovered from the manta glassing. Mostly tribes of what our spy termed techno-nomads had primitives. Hmm, how much force would these techno-nomads be able to bring to bear? The Great Most High asked. To Arnu gave his race's equivalent of a shrug again. Unknown. Apparently, they fight amongst themselves quite a bit for territory and resources, so it's doubtful that they'd be able to put up a coordinated defense or offense against us, which means that they'll be easily defeated. The Great Most High nodded. And our ships in orbit? He turned to the Most High in command of dropships. How did our ships in orbit fare? The Most High looked up from where he was sitting, staring at his hand. What ships? he asked. Our ships in orbit, the ones with the planet crackers, our reinforcements and our orbital support, the great Most High repeated. The Most High looked up. Gone. A quarter of our forces never made it off the ships before they were destroyed. We have no resupply in orbit. Terran orbital defense took down our entire task force. Can we get support from the task force waiting in orbit? Another Most High asked. The Most High of Orbital Operation shook his head. There are no ships in orbit that last longer than a few minutes. Most don't even get within orbit of the planet's overly large satellite. It's like every square inch of the planet is covered in orbital defense systems. The Great Most High just stared in shock. None of them! What about the Domination-class Superdreadnoughts? There were over a hundred in our task force alone. Half of them broke up or exploded with all hands before we even made orbit. The rest were destroyed by guns on the surface of the planet and the satellites as we disembarked. The orbital most high said, staring at the floor again. 
Those damnable guns of theirs. What about the Leviathan glasses? We had almost thirty of them. Another high most asked. Blown out of orbit. A few lasted a little longer, but they were under attack by the same Terran aerospace assets that took out the most high's entire force. The orbital operations high said. He slowly took a wad of Nutricut out of his pouch and put it in his mouth. Some of the Leviathans didn't even get a chance to launch the dropships. Ta'anu just nodded, bringing up a window on his datapad and looking at the timestamps for when the various ships had gone offline and when the dropships had launched. Less than half of our entire task force has survived to even get in range of launching dropships. Before we were halfway to the target, the last transponder went offline, Ta'anu said. The most high is correct. Less than a quarter of our forces survived to this landing zone. The other task forces either suffered the same fate or landed with less than a tenth or were destroyed in orbit. The great most high's hand shook as he stamped his hooves for a moment to get himself back under control. How? How were they able to destroy the Leviathans with just a handful of shots from their guns? Because a single salvo from one of their lunar batteries is capable of destroying a super dreadnought, and a half salvo from a Terran groundside orbital defense batteries could do the same. To Arnu said, looking at the data, it's not just their kinetic weapons, not just their standard laser warhead missiles. They've got munitions that go far beyond what we're capable of. Like what? Big rocks! The aerospace most high sneered. Like this. Ta'anu swiped on the datapad, throwing the image taken from one of the dropship's external cameras up onto the large data screen against the wall. The big Leviathan-class ship's shields were blazing brightly, almost hiding the ship itself as more missiles came howling in on it. This is from the initial salvo, Ta'anu said. He used his finger to run the pointer. At this time, the fury of the unstoppable herd had been engaged for less than half a second. I'm slowing down time at a 50 to 1 scale so that you can understand what is happening. The shields flared brightly again. That's a hit from one of those weapons they call a C-plus cannon, which uses the kinetic mass increased due to speed to make a 20-ton slug of raw iron into something weighing approximately a thousand times the original mass and kinetic mass. Ranu said, We are not sure how it works, but the Executor Intelligence Agency said that the new shielding would stop the rounds. They did for, um... He pointed right at the shields and the massive ship dropped, revealing its awesome lines. It was almost fifty miles long, ten miles wide, and a mile thick. Half the barrage, Toronto said. The massive craters started dimpling the Leviathan's armor, and plumes of vaporized alloy started bursting from the craters. There's the rest of the barrage. This was the first barrage fired at the fury of the unstoppable herd, which has never been beaten in over twelve million years. So, the executor's vaunted shielding failed. The aerospace most high sneered, grasping at anything to make himself look better. Any other shielding would have been ineffective. The rounds passing straight through it and detonating inside the hull, like they did with the corporate fleet, Ta'anu said. He highlighted a volley of missiles. 
These missiles, with the shield down, drove in for the kill. There's only a few dozen missiles, the aerospace most high said, frowning. How can only a few dozen kill the fury? Because each missile represents a hundred, Tardu said. On screen, the missiles began to sparkle. They're firing off blazer heads pretty far out, the air defense most high mused. They aren't firing off laser heads. Terran missile systems are particularly aggravating, Tanu said. He zoomed in on what looked like a long tube with two boxes, one on each end, tacked on. As everyone watched, the boxes fired off 280 missiles each. Then the tubes vanished. What happened? The armor most high asked. Once it fires the submunitions and this one missile, the main body of the missile uses Graviton Driver to yank itself into the grav field from the back, accelerating forward into a hypervelocity NCV round, Taadu said. The display followed the missile in, which came in fast at spiraling, dodging point defense systems. Taadu looked around and could see that the majority of the most highs were sneering at the tiny missiles. The fire and Anu froze the image. Each of those beams is only a meter wide. They're firing directly into and around the impact point of the NCV round, Anu stated. Now, look at the damage. The beams just seemed to call the hole straight into the ship, sending up clouds of particles. What was that? The Most High asked, and the screen pulled back to show the fury starting to break apart. As near as any system can tell, it changes the charges of atomic forces, making static electrical charges attractive and nuclear attraction force repelling. It makes the atoms just come apart. But you haven't seen the rest, to Anu hit play. In comes the rest of the missiles, to Anu said, highlighting what should have either been destroyed by the firing of the beams or been nothing but dead junk. Instead, it immediately pulsed and vanished. That's a pulse of some type of energy we don't really understand. It disrupts senses. The screen went white. That's the fury exploding. There was a silence as to Anu ended the video. And that, Great Most High, is why we have exactly zero orbital assets, he finished. And the other task forces, the Great Most High asked. Those that made it to the ships took heavy casualties, making platypore. Over 40% were wiped out completely. We're the strongest, and we have slightly less than a third of our forces. No aerospace assets, limited artillery, and no ammunition beyond what was carried, Tardu said. And what is the opinion of the military intelligence regarding our efforts here to destroy the planetary shield generator? The Great Most High asked. Ta'anu said something that he had never thought in all of his 300 years of life that he'd ever say. We have no chance. The only question is a simple one, Ta'anu said. And what is that? The aerospace most high sneered. How long it takes the Terrans to kill us? Inside the ore cloud, when the corporate fleet dropped in, Ancient subspace beacons running on a forgotten and lost channel stirred to life. They were clustered with ice and particle debris from a thousand years of drifting through the cloud. 
using gravetic anchors to stay in roughly the same position. They were completely indetectable unless someone knew the exact bat to look upon. A band that had been abandoned long ago. The corporate fleet oriented on their targets, the different planets of the Sol system, and began sweeping through empty space towards their targets. Light seconds or even minutes between planetary bodies. They were convinced that there could be no resistance, no unified defense. They were wrong. From the ore cloud was coming massive volumes of firepower, missiles, Z-blast cannons, singularity cannons, large-bore maser cannons capable of frying a small moon, shoals of screaming drones, subspace resonance cannon shot, even superstring compressor cannon rounds normally fired at planetary batteries. When the corporate fleet had been driving its system, something in the ore cloud had been hammering them, the drones raking the rear of the fleet, the compressor cannons blowing 30-mile-wide channels of obliteration through the rear of the fleet, the missiles hammering the rear ranks of the tens of thousands. Each group would see the fire happen, and by the time the munitions reached them, with the exception of the five volleys of hundreds of C-plus cannon shells, another fleet, light seconds or minutes away, was being engaged. Kabuka was connected to his massive ship, the hull constructed entirely out of atomic bonded lost glass. The mass tanks were still full to the brim with H3 slash taken from worlds glassed by the mantid. He was aware of every last rivet and screw and strut of his massive ship, aware of every weapon he fired. He was every drone, his brain connected to him by arcane methods created just for him and forgotten. When the technicians and scientists had died in a fury of plasma fire, when the Nova bomb went off and wiped away the research and construction facility. The forward third of his hull was thinly coated with lost glass of the facility's death. Inside the great ship, his body, ravaged by being hooked into machines in a stasis tank and left looking like an ancient desiccated corpse, was far away and gave no clue to what filled the immortal. Rage. Every ship he saw was not Terran. He hated furiously. His hate consumed him, his rage fueling the strange matter creation engines and power plants of his great ship, his wrath manifesting in flickering purple battle screens thicker than some ships were longer. He would pump his hate into the universe, weapons roaring in the silence of space, glittering and gleaming as they reached out for the hated enemy. They were hated for merely existing. Kabuka could feel the empty spot inside him where once his brothers had been as he made the micro-jumps to different parts of the old cloud to get behind the enemy forces and fire his weapons. Again and again. And again. When the military fleet made its drop, Kapuka had been reduced to using an extreme range firepower, and the new targets were a welcome victim to his all-consuming rage. He jumped to behind the thickest of the attackers, the fleet he knew that would attack Lost Terror. He waited, letting his guns cool, his creation engines deslush, his stealth systems realign. He deployed drones by the thousands, his fragmented mind linking with all of them. He was not like his brother, not like his fellow immortal. 
Legion was all of himself. Kabuka was linked to every weapon like a true warrior should. Alike, but fundamentally different. The lead elements of the military fleet began moving inward towards their targets. Left behind were massive ships that had only a slight percentage of military fleet stay behind. They were the size of capital class of the enemy, but Kabuka's senses did not see the massive amount of weapons the capital ships would carry. Kabuka's dead, but a life mouth twisted in a sneer. A command and a control ship always appears identical to the combat ships, otherwise the enemy could pick them out of formation. His senses twitched. He flexed muscles he didn't have. He moved limbs he'd never existed. From out of the ore cloud screamed thousands of drones, shawls and missiles and heavy weapon battery shots. The Lanark Land military fleet's command and control grand rear most high began dying. Kabuka didn't care about their fate. He infused every shot, every missile, every beam with his hate. I just wanted to be left alone, to sleep the dreamless, deathless sleep. The black ships of the Antius fleet made the exit from dead space to real space with a roar. Real space bulging, twisting, and finally tearing to allow the skull-proud ships of the entire Antius fleet to be bloodily birthed into the real space in the Sol system. They had traveled for long enough that every ship sported a thick layer of dead matter. That the prows were nothing more than screaming Terran skulls with flames in their eyes and jaws. Bologna reached out with her senses even as she lifted up her baton. She stood on the airless showbridge of a great ship. The first and the most might. The Glor, built in the foundries of hateful Mars. The Glor had been the first ship whose entire hull and superstructure had been made entirely from war steel. She had everything by the crew when the Mantid had attacked. In order to keep the Mantid from repurposing her, the engineers, as their last act of defiance, had destroyed the computer linkages and command control runs near the bridge. They had cut Glor's throat even as the Mantid raced towards the ship. Bologna could remember both of her rebirths. Once as Bologna, the undying beauty, servant and apostle to the digital Omni Messiah. Again as an immortal, bound to the glory and a dark, refitting facility in place of where even death had died. She watched as one by one her children joined her fleet gestalt chat. The Missouri was last, coming through a few seconds after the steamboat Willie, her newest daughter. By the time Willie got closer to dead space, Bologna had absorbed and analyzed the data directly around her fleet and flung out her will to her defiant children. Open fire! Bologna screamed out, lowering her baton. Her skirt swirled in the vacuum of the showbridge and her hair drifted around her. The guns of the Black Fleet opened up in the remains of the corporate fleet that had been driving hard towards the refinery complex in the asteroid belt. The Black Fleet had exited right in the middle of the fleet, the mass displacement turning the corporate fleet's vessels into little more than subatomic fog by the violence of the re-entry into real space. 
Bologna could see another fleet coming with her blinded eyes and sent the warning to Terrasol's system defense, even as she ordered her children to finish off the stragglers and set course for down and outward from Sol itself. She ordered the guns to fire on ships that she could see that had not arrived. Her children didn't question, their crews loyal and faithful. All the crews were at 100%. Half of her children were running with the Kentai captains, but that was fine. Plenty of psychic circuitry had been damaged in the fight with the Dark Ones. Many templates had been damaged in the fight with the Precursor AWMs. And then the new species. So running in safe mode was fine with Bologna. In the below decks of the Bismarck, dozens of teenage girls loaded guns by hand, sweating as they passed the shells by hand the multi-ton shells being passed between the girls that looked too weak to pick up a heavy book. In the gunnery stations, they clenched their teeth and fired, ignoring the return fire that hammered their shields of the great warship. On the deck of the Kentai captain stared with eyes full of hate. Behind her was her birthplace, Terrasol. A small part of her keel had been taken from the wreckage of the original ship from where it lain at the bottom of the great ocean in the dark and silence for centuries. She reached out and touched her master control panel, running her fingers across it, even as the great dark engines of the Bismarck drove them forward towards the newly arrived enemies. We are the unyielding hammer of terror, victory or death, Bismarck roared across the channels. Either is fine. The rest of the Black Fleet roared in agreement. Legion moved his fleet to intercept the next wave, spreading out in a classic bull's head. The horns of the formation made up his faster missile wagons. The skull of the formation made up of his heavy ships with their massive guns. He didn't need the computers to formulate strategy and pass on his orders. Instead, they were all dedicated to analysis of the enemy's attack patterns and defensive systems. His fast cloning tanks and his creation engines finished replacing the torch ship's interceptors that he'd lost, as well as the fast attack bombers, and he'd ordered them launched once each cleared preliminary checks. He faintly heard Bologna's shrieking battle cry. He could feel Kabuka's wrath and hate emanating from the entire ore cloud, and he felt his blood... Run, cold. Legion knew it was going to happen again. He didn't want to hear it, but he knew he would. I just want left alone. End of chapter. Chapter 289. It had taken Executive Fleet nine hours to reach Terra from where they had dropped out of hyperspace in the Sol system. Normally, they would have been able to drop inside the system, nearly to the planets. But some kind of system, or maybe just a natural aberration, had caused the ships to drop out of hyperspace between the Oort and the Ninth Planetoid. From the second that they'd made their entry to real space, the time that they'd reached their planetary goals, the massive, unending tide of executive vessels had been under heavy fire. Before they crossed the orbit to the sixth planet, the majority of the Grand Restmost Highs were obliterated, killed by fire from the ore cloud by an unseen enemy. 
The fleet heading for the fourth planet had been hammered down in less than 30% of its initial strength by the fleet that seemed to move as if it was controlled by a single mind. The fleet heading for the second planet had run face-first into a fleet of only 30 ships that had put out enough firepower and launched enough parasite craft that less than 20% of the fleet had survived to be engaged by orbital guns. On the one and a half billion ships thrown at the Sol system in the three great waves, less than 10% reached orbits of each of the inner planets. By the time the executive fleet reached their targets, their ships of the corporate fleet and military fleets were nothing but spreading debris and junk. Hardly any Lanikalan executive fleets reached out to orbit of terror compared to what had been slated to destroy the planet. Half of them were warships instead of troop ships. There should have been two and a half billion troop ships to land on Terrasol itself, to release five billion soldiers of the Great Herd onto its surface. Instead, only a hundred thousand managed to arrive and drop the troops before getting obliterated. Only three hundred million and some change made it to the surface alive from the executive fleet. More than the corporate and military fleets combined. Of the ships still in orbit, some tried to cluster together to help defend one another. They died. Some tried to run. They died too. Some attempted to crash through the shields even though their ships massed too much and were too large to pass through the planetary defense shields. They died, breaking apart like a toy boat made of matchsticks thrown against a brick wall. Some struck their drives, dropped their shields except for the debris shields, fully expecting to be slaughtered but unable to see any way out. They were shocked when they were spared. Across the Sol system, the executors came in hard and fast. Most of the remaining Grand and Great Rearmost Highs had realized something terrible when the stars had flickered and vanished. They weren't getting out of this attack alive unless they could defeat the Terran fleets. Silence the huge gun batteries, destroy the defense systems, and crack the planets. So they pushed the attacks. The ships landed on the largest continent in the southern hemisphere. They'd identified a priority target during their emergency planetary landing. What was obviously a vast solar collection far, the mirrors visible from space. The ships set down, most of them bobbing strangely. The pilots had a hard time landing, most of them looking through the sensor systems and frowning. Just black below them. And of course, the collision alarms wailing because the ship's image was being reflected back in a solid mass of a mirror. Rather than individual mirrors, the dropships settled on nothing but polished glass. The first troops trotted out and the dropships hit the glass and began to slip. It was slick as, well, glass. The ships themselves were surrounded by heat and the heat from the engines was reflected back up into the ship and around it. Still, 150,000 troops ran out from 60 troop ships, all that was left of nearly 10,000 ships that had exited hyperspace and into the Sol system. Where are we? the Grand High Executor asked, looking around at the glass that he carefully moved across. A few hundred yards away, an infantry 80th most high and his troops try setting off some plasma grenades on the glass to try and break through it. The reflected heat made most of them whinny in pain and clatter to the side, away from the unmarred glass. According to the data passed by our spy when we came into orbit, 
A place is called Botswana, in Africa, his intelligence specialist said. The city of Gaboroni, in the middle of the solar collector. I don't think that's a solar collector, the engineer most high said, looking at the data pad in his hand. What is it? the grand high executor asked. It's been polished to a mirror brightness, somehow, and smoothed. But it looks like glass from orbital weapons hitting silicon dioxide particles. The engineering most high said. It extends literally to the bedrock some sixty feet below us and is somehow hardened. Plasma glass from orbital weapons, the most high executor said, looking around. You sure? The engineer nodded. I'm sure, great most high. My men have sent out drones, having them run on echolocation rather than optical due to the reflective nature of the glass confusing the drones. But so far as it extends at least ten miles around us and all the way down to bedrock. How far is it to Gaboroni? The great most high asked. As far as we could tell, at least a hundred miles, the great most high of infantry said. How far outside the edge of the solar collector? The great most high executor asked. Nearly two hundred miles, the infantry most high answered. Deploy the vehicles, run checks on the mechs and power armor. We can't dig emplacements in the glass, so we'll advance upon the city and destroy to eliminate the power center, the great most high executor said. He looked off to the east where a glow was starting. Sunrise is soon. We'll be able to see better in this terrible place. As you command, his staff said, spreading out and giving orders to their soldiers. The great most high executor stood there, watching as the mechs, the power arm, and the vehicles were unloaded. The glow on the horizon was getting larger, coming closer, and the grand most high executor turned to stare at it. He could faintly hear the roaring sound that was getting louder. He saw the sun peek up over the horizon and reflect off the mirrored glass, blinding him. He turned up the polarization on his face shield, but it just got brighter and brighter. His suit started wading alarms as temperatures went up and up. Within moments, it was past the temperature needed to boil water. Seconds after that, it was hot enough to melt lead. Then hotter and hotter. The engines on the landing craft overheated within 60 seconds. Before the sun rose completely over the horizon, it was hot enough to melt steel. By noon, there was nothing left but spreading pools of alloys. The great glass sea of Botswana was merciless. The 200 ships came in fast and hard, at a bad enough re-entry angle that smoke was pouring off their hulls, their battle screens overloaded from the heat. Drop directly down on the sete, the orbital drop most high yelled out, putting his ship into an almost straight down dive, ignoring his instruments screaming at him. He heard yelling as three thousand troops in the back were slammed around, felt the ship shift as the cargo spaces full of armor, weapons, vehicles, and mechs shifted. He didn't care. He was completely absorbed with getting underneath the enemy fire. Nearly 15,000 troop ships in his task force had made it into the system before the stars had vanished, and the astrogation system reported that the ships were in the middle of an empty space between galaxies, with no stars for reference. Less than a thousand had reached Terrasol. 
Only 200 ships remained of the thousands of dropships that had started to drop troops. The amount of ground fire is insane, he thought to himself. Every minute that went by, it seemed like there was more air defense batteries coming online, as if some madman was building them even as the Lanikalan were coming in. It was close enough now that he was taking smaller missiles, obviously the shoulder-fired ones. Straight at the city! They won't shoot us down over a populated area. It'll destroy their own homes. The orbital drop most high said, jamming another wad of stim gun into his mouth. He looked at his instruments and saw he was only 6,000 feet up and still dropping rapidly. His speed had finally dropped below the speed of sound of the swirl, and he was braking as hard as he could without injuring the troops at the back. His armor was still ablating as he dropped below 3,000 feet, hitting the retrobrakes and leveling the dropship off at barely 2,000 feet. He swept past the huge buildings, barely missing one. There, there is an open area right there, he told the remaining dropships, big enough for all of us. It was inside the city, and he wished he had ordinance that he could drop other city as he dropped further down. The dropship slammed into the ground with a bone-cracking slam, the forward struts buckling under the strain. He managed to keep control of the vessel as it slewed forward and finally came to rest only a foot from a thick wall. Out! 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 The dropmaster of the ship yelled. We've got fire! Ko-o-ma-o hit the pilot canopy, grasping his pistol and climbing out tugging a face mask into place as he trotted down the extending steps. The dropships had the Lennon clan pining out, most of them on fire. As he watched, more and more of the dropships caught on fire, as if their hulls were made of some kind of flammable material instead of battle steel. The night has an area, kept flashing on his visor as he reached down and cranked up his nanite suppression field. Most high of drop trotted up, waving up dropships, all of which were on fire. Some Lanikalan were trying to put them out, but it just got worse, almost as if it was mocking the Lanikalan fighting the blaze. How bad? Kaolma'o asked, taking a plasma rifle the Most High was offering. Twenty percent of the troops are injured, ten percent of those badly enough that they're out of the fight. The dropmaster, Ma'o said, shaking his head. I'm just glad we got to the ground. We've still got to take the command and control for the defense systems, Koalma'o stated. Explosions filled the air and Koalma'o looked up in time to see fire light up in the sky in streams of color. Did someone get here before us? Lo Minmo asked proudly. I don't think so. I saw crowds in the street. The sun set during our brooch, Koalma'o said more detonations with colorful explosions in the sky. How many men do we have? Roughly 2,000 per dropship. We made it down with 170 dropships, so uh, almost 350,000 ground troops, Lowen Mo said. He waved at the city. We're in what looks like an industrial section. Maybe. The city center where the defensive system coordination should be is that way, about a mile or two through the crowds. Several warmakes tried to get out of the ships, but caught on fire, the armor burning fiercely. All of the pilots punched out, ejecting, even as the flames managed to get under the armor 
and set the internal systems on fire. What's going on? Loan Mo asked. Ka'ol Ma'o noticed that the Most High Drop's Master Sidearm was smoking and looked down at his own weapon. His glove hand had sunken into the plastia and the frame was starting to smoke. Jack weapons! He bellowed out of the command channel, overriding the other Most Highs, even interrupting the Task Force Grand Most High. In the time it took him to finish the sentence, his plasma rifle burst into flame. He threw it away from himself towards the burning dropship, then reached out, grabbed his pistol, and threw it afterwards. The pistol burst into flame, but there. Get out of your armor! The infantry most high screamed. Ka'olma'o looked around and saw that more than a few of the armored lanikalans were bursting into flame. Ka'olma'o hit a jet of the armor and fell into two pieces, both pieces smoking. He trotted back and stared at his armor as a caught fire. It took almost 20 minutes to get everything under control. By the time all of the dropships, the tanks, the warbacks, the armored personnel carriers, the power arm, the weapons, even the power assist frames were all burning away. Ko'oma'o realized it was hot, not just from the fire, but hot and humid. And he was standing outside, naked. The nearly half a million strong Lanaktalan force had gathered instinctively into groups, the smaller males in the middle, the larger on the outside. There was a lot of nervous whinnying and clattering of hooves as the fires burned. Great Most High, there is a Terran here, the Most High Recon forces said. Then kill him, the Task Force Great Most High said. Um, he's armored and armed. I don't know how I would kill him, Most High. The recon leader said. He says he wants to see someone in charge. Koalma'o, you'll see what this turn wants. Since your usefulness came to an end when the dropships all caught fire. The task force most high said. Koalma'o felt his heart sink. Still, orders were orders. And he followed the directions to the north side of the big area where the ships had set down. Weaving between the piles of burning. Finally, he saw a recon most high standing next to a brown-skinned human in a colorful outfit that almost hurt his eyes. I am Koalma'o, orbital dropship most high, Koalma'o told the human. The human, who had brown hair twisted into braids of some kind of brown tube emitting smoke from one as well as bright amber eyes, smiled, showing uh, a lot of teeth. I am Eugene Santos, mayor of Rio de Janeiro, nation-state of Brazil, the human said. He gave an even bigger smile. Well, looks like you all have a problem. Surrender and be destroyed, the most high of Warmax said, trotting up behind Koalma'o. Shut up, you fool, Koalma'o snarled. Well, you're naked, but with the carnival de Brazil going on, it's not illegal, the mayor said. He squinted and looked up at the smoke in the sky from the Ka'olma'o's entrance. Looked like you guys were pretty desperate to make it in time for the festivities. So, once you were disarmed, I figured I'd extend you an invitation. We're here to destroy your world, you fool, the Warmech Most High repeated. Man, you need a drink and to get laid, the mayor Eugene said, shaking his head. He looked back at Ka'olma'o. Once the soup disarmed you, since we chose non-lethal because of the blood and screaming and death, 
might bring down the body. I figured I'd invite you to the end of the world party. So, um, you're not taking us prisoner, Ko'olma'o asked. My cops are busy with the carnival. The human Eugene laughed. The jails are going to be full with idiots. I don't have the space for cows from outer space. What is happening? The great most high asked over Kalma'o's startling. I think we're being invited to a party, Kalma'o said. Tell whoever it is to surrender and be destroyed, the great most high insisted. Tough boss, huh? The human Eugene asked. Kalma'o nodded, not surprised that the human stayed to link could eavesdrop. Want to see what you're missing? The Terran asked, turning his pan palm up. Before Kaomao could answer, a startlingly clear hologram sprung from his hand. There were dancers, giant animated colorful animatronics on hover platforms. People were drinking intoxicants, others smoking intoxicants. Many beings of nearly two dozen races were obviously taking part in a huge public celebration. You don't have to fight, you know, Eugene said, slowly moving his hand so that everyone gathered could see it. It's much better to enjoy life. Ko'alma'o stared at the image and linked back to the Great Most High. I'm going to take my men with me. Make sure it isn't a trap, Ko'alma'o said. I'm not giving up. We're here to destroy them, the Das Wars Great Most High said. Well, I suppose we can keep trying, but either our forces are going to the planet crack this planet and we'll be unable to get away because, oh, I don't know, our dropships are on fire, or, um... And he paused for a second. We're going to lose and either be killed or put in prison camp. So you might as well enjoy the party till then, Eugene said, making sure that they could see the hologram again. I am the great most high of infantry. I'll send two platoons with you. One of the most high said, all right. Ko'alma'o looked at Eugene. I will accompany you. No tricks. Eugene laughed. Oh, there will be tricks, but not the kind you're thinking of. There's deception, perfection, enjoyment, and debauchery, all awaiting you. Ko'oma'o just nodded as nearly a hundred land and a land jocked out. They all looked nervous about the fact that they were completely naked, but the human Eugene didn't seem to care. Let's go. It's only a few blocks to the edge of the partying. I had them clear a parking lot for you, Eugene said. Tony and walking away, making a motion for Ko Almao to follow. Come with me, my friends, to where the show and feast your eyes and where the laughter never dies, Eugene said. Ko Almao glanced up to where he could still see Pinpricks' ships exploding in orbit, then back at Eugene. And uh, we won't be harmed, he asked the human. Not intentionally. Someone always gets drunk and passes out face first in a puddle, Eugene laughed. Ko'alma'o followed. Either way, despite what the Great Most High thought, they'd die when terror was bladder-cracked, or the Terrans would win. He agreed with Eugene. It was better to party in your last moments than weep. Over the next few hours, the Carnival de Brazil swallowed the entire Lanictalan force. Most of the Lanictalans didn't remember till over two weeks after the invasion was all over that they were supposed to be invading not shotgunning alcohol, smoking intoxicants, dancing with nearly fully naked lemurs, or prancing about the streets completely naked. If they'd asked, they would have found out that they weren't the first to be devoured in such a way. And 
they wouldn't be the last. End of chapter. Chapter 290 It obviously pull crap, but it's cool, so I choose to believe it. Anonymous, pre-glassing terror. And lo, did he stride out against the invaders of his homeland. The feathers of a thousand phoenix and firebirds woven into his war bonnet. A tomahawk in one hand, his bow in another, astride a great horse. The tail of the crazed horse rider tightened, pre-glassing terror, the founding of the Hamburger Kingdom. Tens of thousands fell in battle. But at long last, the Titan Rushmore was brought to his knees by the Thunder God Franklin and his lightning-powered battle back. General George Washington, his teeth carved out of the bones of saints and prophets, uttered the words of power that would have killed any lesser man who had even once told a lie. And the Titan Rushmore collapsed into the deep, dreamless sleep. The fall of the mad titan Rushmore, founding of the Hamburger Kingdom. And thus she was placed in the harbor for all to see that the new world was free of the terrible grasp of the titans. On the plaque at her feet was inscribed, She feeds upon the tire, the poor, the hungry, the teeming masses who do not know what it is to be free. God... Against these sins, lest she awaken again. The legend of the devourer of liberty, founding of the Hamburger Kingdom. There is a power gun in every kitchen, a tank in every garage, and a burglander behind every shard of glass with a rifle. They do not care if they die. They only seek to kill those who invade their crazed and insane lands. You may kill one but the blood of a dozen of your brethren stained its skin. Manded Speaker Proverb Eh, they're our little brother. You know how kids are. You're a goon general, pre-glassing. The Lanarkalan couldn't hear the laughing billions. The billions of Manda as they managed to land on one of the most heavily defended continents in the northern hemisphere of terror. It seemed to the pilots that more and more air defense systems were coming online every second, every minute, to the point where not only were the ships being destroyed coming in, but the debris from those ships were being swept from the air. Nearly twenty dropships managed to come in hard, leaving behind them trails of exploded dropships, plummeting debris, and landing to land in armor screaming as they fell to the ground. They slammed down, the ramps opening even as the shock killed nearly 10% of the troops on board, and the military fleet forces rushed out to the dropships, knowing that the missiles would soon be targeting the dropships. The Grand Most High of the task force looked around at the pitiful remains. He had been forced to abandon ship when his beautiful Leviathan-class planetary assault ship, the glory of complete dissolution, was taken multiple C-plus cannon hits and broken up. Now he was standing on the soil of terror herself, a breathing mask over his face and a combat harness on to protect him from nanites. He looked around and forward. There was a statue of a nearly naked Terran on the back of some kind of riding animal that had obviously been carved from the entire mountain. It was over a thousand feet tall. 
the Terran looked like a fierce warrior with hair made from avian feathers. It was thickly covered in a purplish-green glass from orbital weapon hits. The Grand Most High pointed at the statue. As soon as the artillery is set up, use that cultural site for target practice. The Mantid were not able to destroy it. We shall do so. Yes, Grand Most High, the Most High of Artillery said. That was par for the course. Destroy the enemy's cultural sites. Break their will to fight. There was what looked like some kind of shop nearby and the Grand Most High clopped his way over it. He went through it, looking at the objects for sale. Many of them featured that warrior, using a hand axe to cleave through tanks plated red and white, swatting aerospace fighters from midair with one hand and wading waist-deep in water to destroy the wet navy ships. The Grand Most High snorted. Such fables were for the weak and useless species, who insisted on having impossible legends to make up for the lack of accomplishments. He did stop and stare at the large tapestry. It was titled, The Mad Titan Crazy Horse Imprisoned by the Hero Sitting Bull, and showed the giant figure half turned to stone as several groups of people were chanting and billowing up clouds of smoke. He snorted and turned away. Bullishness! When he trotted out, there was a flickering and a human suddenly appeared. A hologram. But still, the Grand Most High drew his pistol and almost shot the hologram before he realized what he was doing. Uh, what you doing? The hologram asked. We have come to destroy your primitive peoples. We'll destroy your pathetic cultural site, then move in and destroy the planetary defense batteries. The Grand Most High sneered. I wouldn't do that, the hologram said. Psh! You are in no position to make demands of the Great Herd, the Grand Most High said. I'm serious. You mess with him too much, you run the risk of waking him up. That wouldn't be a good idea, the hologram said. Be gone, lonely one, the Grand Most High sneered and trotted away. After some time passed, which was strangely devoid of any attacks by the lemurs, the Great Most High of Artillery clattered up to the Grand Most High. In the distance, an aerospace fighter roared by but didn't come too close, something that the Grand Most High had noticed. They are ready to begin the test firing and calibration using that cultural site as a target, the Great Most High of Artillery said. Excellent! Begin at your leisure, the Grand Most High said. The hologram appeared. I wouldn't do that. You're going to wake him up. The Grand Most High sneered. Be gone, holographic pest. Don't say I didn't warn you. The Red Warriors of the Plains National Association take no responsibility for any injury or death incurred by your actions. The hologram said before winking out. The Great Most High of Artillery gave the order and the massive self-propelled guns of the Lanarktalan military fleet began to roar. Each shell had hit below the chunks of glass covering it, showering the area around the gigantic monument with shards of purplish-green glass. Overheads, clouds started to gather. After a few minutes, the guns went silent while they were being recalibrated. Uh, do you see that? The 14th Most High of Military Intelligence said, looking at the giant monument with his vision macro binoculars. 
See what? The Grand Most High said. Follow my laser designated Grand Most High, the lowly Molint technician said. The Grand Most High snorted with exasperation and lifted up his macro binoculars, following the UV laser to where the lowly one was designated. The Grand Most High frowned. The glass, nearly six feet thick, had broken away from, uh, something under the glass. In the middle of the spiderweb of cracks that covered the glass, a large enough chunk was missing to expose what looked like a bronze-colored flesh. There was a tiny gash in it, tiny at this distance, and it was beginning to seep red fluid. Water and iron oxide, perhaps, the great most high in power, Armour asked. I'm unsure, the great most high of artillery said. Second battery is ready to fire. Permission granted. The Grand Most High stated. For long minutes, the artillery part of the glass-covered monument. Then a shell hit just to the side of the lemur's nose, and a huge chunk of glass fell hundreds of feet to shatter on the ground. The guns kept firing, exposing animal hide on the strange monument, exposing skin beneath the glass on the chest and leg. The guns stopped. It was silent for a moment before a loud crack filled the air when another massive chunk of glass fell from the face of the monument, revealing a closed eye. That opened. It was the color of storms. The Grand Most High stared in shock as the eye slowly became bloodshot and began to look around. The glass shuddered and squealed as it began to crack and fall from the figure. With a roar that sounded like a world was ending, the glass shattered and a vast figure raised up, blotting out the sun. He was a bronze-skinned Terran, his black hair held beneath a bonnet of colorful feathers, his flashing eyes the color of storms. His muscles rippled as he twisted and flexed to break away, free from the glass. The Lanarkland artillery opened fire, the explosion smashing into the massive figure as it looked around. Astride the great mount, he was almost 2,000 feet tall. He looked down at the Lanarkland. Most of the Lanarkland were just staring in shock. Some were running away. A handful died of fright when the massive figure had shook its way free of the glass. It raised its hands up, lightning arcing down from the clouds to wreath the figure's hands and arms, even as it stared at the Lanark land. The Grand Most High of the Task Force just stared, his nose and one ear starting to bleed. The vast creature opened its mouth and roared in rage. A third of the Lanark land died with the psychic shielding gave out, and their brains boiled from the ears, or their psychic shielding killed them. It threw an object at one of the dropships. The tomahawk. Or rather, a tomahawk. The dropship exploded into fragments, and the spell was broken. Lanark land started shooting even as the huge figure surged forward throwing tomahawk missiles with one hand and gathering lightning with the other. The hooves of the massive horse shattered troopship armor, crushed tanks and lanarklands alike. The tomahawks thrown by the massive figure blew apart dropships, warmaks, artillery pieces. In the gift shop, the VI watched and shook his head as he watched the mad titan crazy horse, driven mad by the spirit of Jack Daniels, 
route and then pursue the Lenectalone forces. I told you so. As far as the rest of the Lenect land that landed in the Hamburger Kingdom were concerned, the ones that were destroyed by releasing imprisoned titans were lucky. The rest faced off against a nightmare. Tanks, aerospace fighters, grav strikers, artillery, artillery, mortars, rocket attacks, missiles, drones, war wrecks, war borgs, infantry, offshore bombardment by wet navy vessels. They were everywhere, and all of them were armed. No matter where they landed, they were met by military forces that had left the military base only an hour or less from the landing zone. It didn't matter where it was. A city, a desert, a rolling plains, a swamp, a forest. The Terrans moved into attack as if they'd been waiting for it their entire lives. Not one Lanictalan reported seeing a civilian, just Terrans armed to the teeth. The Hamburger Kingdom used those teeth and chewed out the Lanictalan and swallowed them. Screams of terror could be heard in orbit as the people of the Hamburger Kingdom went to work. The ghosts of a billion manted just laughed. The Hamburger Kingdom had been born in blood. Blood soaked with dirt. Blood and sweat was in every building, every road, every dam, everything. Blood was the coin of the Hamburger Kingdom. Blood made the grass grow. North of the Hamburger Kingdom was a quiet land. The people who lived there just wanted to be left to themselves and their culture. They were a hardy people, used to the savage winters and a savage wilderness full of savage creatures. The Lanicland who landed to disable the shield generators in their place mistook silence for fear. The first landing force smashed down in a forest, the pilots breathing a sigh of relief as they reached the ground. The infantry, tanks, battle mechs, and vehicles poured out of the ships and began to dig in. The network was alive with screaming of other than a clan task forces to the south who were begging for reinforcements or dust off. Overlaid with the sounds of lemurs laughing. The Grand Most High of the Landing Force ordered the radio switched off from those channels and had his 200,000 Lanicland strong force use a different frequency. Still, the broadcasts had disturbed him. He had faced a dozen neo-sapient insurgencies or genocidal poachers in his 400 years of service. He had the neural templates of war stadions loaded into his brains. But none of them covered this. None of them covered losing 80% of your forces to even reach the ground, and that was discounting the complete loss of the aerospace assets. None of them covered the insane primates, lemurs who had a gun in each hand as they ran at the land screaming blood-crazed war cries. At least the forest was quiet. He ordered his men to dig in. The two task forces were supposed to hit the two other shoe generators had been wiped out before they'd even crossed the orbit of the fifth planet. The three task forces said to take out the dampener facilities that would prevent foreign atomics or antimatter had been destroyed before they reached the fourth world's orbit. The five task forces set to ensure battlefield dominance had been destroyed before they could even attempt to land. His task force was all that remained out of a dozen. He would have to have a base of operations to resupply at. His supplies were thin as it was, 
the majority of the logistics vessels having been blown apart before they could even cross the asteroid belt. The rest ripped apart by the damnable moon. Trying to get orbital systems up proved fruitless. The systems were blown out of the air before they could get more than 5,000 meters up. Any drone that got up to more than 2,000 feet was blown out of the sky from launches beyond the horizon. Any ground-based drone that got more than 5 miles up was destroyed and the ring was getting tighter. The first warning the Lanaclan had that they were in trouble was the sighting of the huge Terran Warmaks, which immediately caused concern in the Lanaclan ranks. After all, nothing had prepared them for 250-meter-tall warbacks covered in winter woodland camouflage. The Lanaclan guns opened up and the battle screens in front of the mechs rippled, becoming visible around each impact. The warmaks just kept walking forward, through the forest, their footsteps making the ground tremble. More and more Lanaclan weapons opened up. The warmak battle screens were a living thing, snarling and snapping and sparking and cascading lightning. The Lanaclans hastily set up point defenses began screaming, destroying shells nearly a mile away. With each step, the war mechs the artillery shells aimed at the Lanaclan were destroyed a little bit closer. The gunnery, most high in charge of the point defense systems, ramped up the firing rate. Ammo consumption meant that soon the Terran artillery should slacken as artillery pieces had to reload their ammunition bays. They pushed the wall of explosions back. For a moment, the war borgs exited the wood first, nearly five miles away all spread out at least two meters apart. Behind them came heavy Terran tanks, some of them weighing over a thousand tons. Then the war mechs stepped out. All of them started firing, their weapons highly accurate, striking at the point defense systems and surface-to-air missile emplacements first. To the Lanaclan surprise, the artillery impacts hit in front of the advancing Terran forces which moved to complete silence in complete lockstep. Lanaclan plasma rounds were hitting defense screens of the warborgs, hitting the battle screens of the tanks, hitting the battle screens of the warmaks around the feet of the ankles, then doing nothing but exploding. The artillery was hammering down in front of the advancing Terrans, who were advancing in their own fire, even as the artillery fire kept coming closer and closer to the Lanaclan lines. The Lanaclan tensed, knowing from the Hamburger Kingdom borders the missiles should start raking their lines. Instead, the Terrans just kept advancing, walking forth as if they were trying to catch up with their own artillery fire, which was ripping into the ground only a few meters in front of them. Less than a hundred meters out, then forced stop. Surrender! All be destroyed, eh? Roared out from one of the warmaks. Throw down your weapons and put your hands on top of your head, eh? In answer, the Lanaclan land kept up the fire. Well, uh, sorry about this then. The Terran warmaks broadcast from their speakers. The artillery crashed back down and the Terran forces charged the Lanaclan lines. Some groups of Lanaclan were smart enough to throw down their weapons and surrender. The rest died. The Grand Most High survived, having been knocked out by a Terran soldier wearing only body armor, back-handing him across the side of the face. 
He was brought in front of a Terran, dressed in official-looking red and white, with a brown hat. It is over, eh? the Terran said. The Grand Most High bowed his head. It was unthinkable. The Great Horde would be defeated. But he was on his knees, with the Terran patting him gently on the head. There, there. It'll be all right, Aruno, Chimarino. Just be gladly, Adley, that you aren't in the cell there. The Grand Most High realized, strangely enough, he was. End of chapter. And that, my friends, concludes this video. I hope that you enjoyed. And if you do, please consider supporting the author, even by popping over and leaving a thumbs up or a nice comment, just to show your appreciation for the story. However, if you wish to support this channel, there are links down below which will help immensely. I will see you all in the next one. And until then, I hope that you have a fantastic day. Cheers.